Hello, everybody, and welcome to All In. I am the Mega Evolution of Eric. And I'm the limited edition Holofoil Seth card. Man, how dare they forget about Zelda's 35th anniversary? Dude, you're still upset about that? That was almost a week ago now. Oh, but I haven't forgotten. We cannot let them get away with this. Look, we're going to talk about that and plenty of other things in this week's news roundup. But for now, we've got to focus on the anniversary at hand. Today is Pokemon Day. Today is the 25th anniversary of Pokemon. <sighs> you're right. You're right. I also cannot believe how incredibly old that makes us. <laughs> but yes, today is all about Pokemon. And in this week's Indie Showcase, we're talking about a game that we really think Pokemon fans should check out. Monster Sanctuary by Moirai Games. And then we'll have the honor of facing off against some true Pokemon Masters when we count down our top five gym leaders of all time. And of course, we've got to break down everything from that Pokemon Presents from yesterday and talk about what 25 years of Pokemon means to us. Well, I've got my Pokeball and my streamers. Let's get this party started. It's time to go all in. Yes, it is party time, everybody. Hello and welcome to All In, a Nintendo podcast. We want to welcome new and returning listeners to the weekly Nintendo Variety Show, where each and every Saturday, no shell is left unturned and no point is left unearned. And it is a Pokemon celebration over here. It is Pokemon Day, the 25th anniversary. We're talking all things Pokemon this week. We've got a great show lined up. Can't wait to get into it. Man, I, I can't even believe... That, that number, 25 years, that, that is a horrifying number to confront. <laughs> I still have very vivid memories of the very first time that I played Pokemon Blue back when I was a wee little Eric. Yeah, no, those were super, super formative games for the both of us. Um, super vivid memories, but we're going to get into that. But first, sir, what's been going on this week? Well, it hasn't been Pokemon, admittedly, but I have been playing quite a few RPGs this week bravely default 2 came out yesterday and i uh, we don't have it yet but i did play the demo again just kind of gearing up for that release uh playing a little monster sanctuary gearing up for our indie showcase this week i played the project triangle demo if you're a fan of final fantasy tactics if you have Obviously, this was pretty apparent from the trailer, but if you're a Final Fantasy Tactics fan at all, that's definitely a demo you should check out. Uh, I did also put a little bit more time into Hades, put a little bit more time into Donkey Kong Country 2, and of course, watched WandaVision yesterday. Uh, No one thing really took up all my free time this week, but I have certainly been keeping myself busy. (laughs) A little bit of this, a little bit of that. Indeed. Indeed. (laughs) Nothing wrong with that. Well, over in my corner, it has been very much Pokemon week. I've uh, been very into my, my wife and I have been watching the old anime series, kind of basking in that nostalgia, kind of getting, you know, getting into the mood for Pokemon. Um, I actually dusted off Pokemon Let's Go Pikachu, kind of wanted to dig into that a little bit, play, play around with that a little bit more. Just kind of, I don't know, man, I'm just in the mood for some Pokemon. 
all the energy, you know, surrounding, no pun intended, surrounding the the Pokemon Day and the 25th. I've just been very, very much in a Pokemon mood. And uh, man, it's just a lot of a lot of stuff leading up to this day. So really, really excited. Um, did, you know, again, much like you, didn't have like one main thing. I think Monster Sanctuary is very much the main game I played this week. Did want to give just a really quick Ring Fit Adventure update. It is the last episode of the month. Indeed. So really, really quick update on that. Um, it is important to me that I stay honest with you guys as I go through this adventure and as I as I tackle this for this year. So I'm going to be real with you guys. It has been a rough month for me just physically, like physical health-wise. Um, I've been... I honestly have been down more than I've been up this month. <laughs> um, it's I, I don't get sick very often, but this month alone, I've been sick like three or four times. So Ring Fit has very much kind of gone on the back burner this past month. I'm not going to lie to you um, just because I, I have not been feeling up to it. That being said, I did play quite a bit. And I think just by virtue of being as sick as I've been this month, I did wind up still losing weight, uh, surprisingly, considering that I didn't play Ring Fit every day like I normally would. Well, when you're sick, that'll happen. Exactly. Yeah. So uh, yeah, against all odds, I did wound up still losing an additional four pounds uh, this past month. So that's something. I That's actually more than I was expecting. So I'm still down from my, from my start weight uh, pretty considerably. So I'm happy with that kind of trying to come into March with a lot more motivation, especially now that I'm starting to feel better. I, I got like a really bad stomach bug and um, I, I'm just, I'm kind of trying to hit it a lot more hardcore uh, now that we're getting into March. So trying to take some of this positive energy and, and positive focus and really hit it a lot more severely in March. And hopefully next time I report back to you guys, I'll have some more significant losses to report, but that's where I'm at right now. I made it through the woods. I'm feeling a lot better. And uh, hopefully next month I'll have some more good news for you guys. So that's more or less where I'm at. Um, yeah, I, I to be honest with you, much like you, I haven't had any like one thing that has like dominated my, uh, my interests this week. So to be honest, I kind of feel like we should just get right into the news. Sounds good. There's certainly a lot to get into. Happy Pokemon Day. Let's do this. So I think the elephant in the room when it comes to the news cycle this week, something that we just have got to stop and address is the absolute radio silence from Nintendo on Zelda's 35th anniversary this past Sunday. Now, look, guys, we we weren't expecting we've talked on this show quite a bit about Zelda's 35th anniversary we we weren't expecting some like huge direct blowout on the day. We're still very much in the middle of Mario's 35th. But for Nintendo to literally say nothing really kind of drove me crazy. <laughs> it really did, actually. We did wind up trying to... We tagged Nintendo in a social media post. We tried to get them to say something. We tried. Yeah, it's really weird that they didn't say anything at all on Zelda's anniversary. Obviously, we had the Nintendo Direct last week in which they announced Zelda Skyward Sword HD and that expansion pass, that season pass for Hyrule Warriors Age of Calamity. But the 35th anniversary of Zelda is a big deal and we have not seen right. a single thing from Nintendo about 
specifically about Zelda's 35th anniversary. Yes, I know uh, March 31st and Mario's 35th anniversary. Yeah, we get that. But for Nintendo not to even acknowledge the day on the day was just so bizarre. You and I were, you and I honestly thought that Nintendo was, you know, I I really thought that they were going to be blowing up social media all day with different posts, not necessarily with announcements, but with a lot of nostalgic kind of looking back posts on the history of the Zelda franchise, but nothing. You know what we got? We got part-time UFO posts. <laughs> that was the weirdest thing to me. They posted in like a 48-hour span, they posted like three or four things about part-time UFO. It legitimately felt like they were trolling me specifically. I was just like, I was like, what is going on here, you guys? I, again, we were not expecting some big blowout. We were not expecting announcements or shadow drops or whatever. We were just expecting something, you know, like... The Pokemon company is a great example, right, of of what they've been doing with Pokemon Week, counting down with all the different starters and stuff from the different generations. Like, something like that would have been really nice on the day. I just can't believe that Zelda, which is arguably their very biggest, most important franchise right now, has a 35th anniversary, and on the day, radio silence. Not even so much as a text post. You know, if you're not going to make any artwork or whatever, fine, but not even a text post on Twitter or Facebook or anything to acknowledge the anniversary. It was unbelievable. And it was understandably, I believe, the number one trending topic on Twitter the entire day. From, it was, yeah. From 12.01 in the morning, I saw people posting and tagging. Uh, there's There was a ton of beautiful fan art going around. Uh, last Sunday yeah. for Zelda's 35th anniversary, a ton of gorgeous, gorgeous stuff. I believe we shared a couple of them, but you know, everybody was posting their own memories and their own, uh, th- their own specific experiences with the Zelda franchise. And we were just kind of waiting to see what the developers, what the publishers, what the owners, what the creators of right. Zelda were going to say. And you know, it's weird. It's almost as if you hold a party for somebody and then that right. person doesn't show up and you're just like, okay, I guess we'll all just hang out and talk amongst each other then. That's kind of what happened. That's basically exactly what happened. I, I think there is something kind of weirdly beautiful about the way the community kind of celebrated on their own. But like, you know, we kind of made the most out of that party as it were. We still ate the cake, you know, but oh yeah. Um, but you know, it, it is just, and I get it, you know, I, it's marketing. I understand there's been a lot of articles written about this and, and, you know, you and I have talked about this privately. It's all marketing. I get it. You don't want to detract from Mario's 35th. You've got, I'm, I'm sure. And I, I saw a lot of folks who were worried that this meant that Nintendo had no plans for Zelda's 35th. I don't think that's the case. I think that we're going to get to the summer and they're going to actually blow it out officially. And they're going to, you know, they're going to talk about Skyward Sword and they're going to talk about all this. The The Hyrule Warrior season pass is going to be in full effect. We're going to have more Zelda stuff to look forward to. I'm sure of it. But, you know, I think that the just again, just the the audacity to post nothing on the 35th. Like, I really don't think that a simple post would have detracted from Mario's 35th anniversary. I really don't think it would have hurt you at all to just post something. I I just, it was so crazy. Here's what I'll tell you, Nintendo. 
let's say that your own personal 35th marriage anniversary is coming up. So about a week beforehand, you and your spouse go out and you have a nice date night. You have a nice dinner. You enjoy yourselves. You both understand what's going on. But then the actual day of your 35th anniversary, you don't even tell your spouse happy anniversary. uh, You really should have done something. I mean, yeah. You should have posted something. If I were Nintendo's wife, they'd be in the doghouse right now. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Tell me about it. I mean, it's unfortunate, but it is what it is. Like I said, you know, the the community made the most out of it. And then there's some pretty beautiful stuff going around. It's a series that means a lot to a lot of people. So I, I am looking forward to whenever the celebration does kind of begin in earnest and we can all be excited about some new Zelda stuff. But I will say that we did get some more exciting kind of retro stuff being brought to the fore in the form of the BlizzCon online event that happened. Uh, We got some really cool announcements out of that. The first one kind of in the opening ceremony, Blizzard Arcade Collection, which was shadow dropped during the opening ceremony, was released on Switch and it contains the Lost Vikings, Rock and Roll Racing, and Blackthorn and kind of a nice, concise little package. Um, I, I really like it. It's like a $20 package and it's got these three games. It's got, you know, concept art, behind the scenes videos, developer interviews. It's a really nice little package. And again, shadow dropped out of nowhere during BlizzCon Online. Yeah, this is certainly not something I was expecting to come out of BlizzCon. I was hoping to get some Nintendo Switch style announcements, and this wasn't the only one we got. We did get a few other things, but especially after Capcom released their own arcade collection last week during the Nintendo Direct, I uh, of all the developers and all the publishers out there, Blizzard was not yeah. Blizzard was not the company I was expecting to drop their own arcade collection. Although with Capcom releasing a 30-game arcade collection, <laughs> I, I do have to say, as much as I like the Lost Vikings and this entire package, a three-game collection does seem yeah. a little sparse next to some of the other multi-game collections that are coming out. But again, it's only 20 bucks, and it is three, especially the Lost Vikings. I'd pay 20 bucks for the Lost Vikings. That was a great SNES game back in the day. Game's weird, but it's it's cool. It's interesting, if nothing else. I, I can't say that I've ever played anything exactly like it. But I will say, too, fooling around with this collection, Rock and Roll Racing, I have never played that game before. That game is really good. <laughs> like, I was super impressed by that game. It's got, like, right from the outset, they've got, all like, a ton of licensed music. It, like, opens with Bad to the Bone. Not a cover, like, actually Bad to the Bone. <laughs> like... It's got this weird kind of like neo cyberpunk aesthetic and it's totally 90s. I kind of love it. And um, yeah, and and like they they don't have a rich history, Blizzard, with these kind of arcade releases. It was not long before Blizzard became the Starcraft guys, the Warcraft guys, you know, the the Diablo guys. And um, it wasn't long before they became that, basically. And and those games kind of got lost to the ether and, and lost in the in the dark corner of their history, basically. So it is kind of cool to see them revisit this and re-release it in a really nice bundle on switch. And like I said, it's got a ton of bonus content, which you always love to see in these. So I'm not hating on it. I like it. And you can also pay the $30 and you can get a, uh, overwatch skin and like, uh, some loot boxes for overwatch. You can get some Diablo in game cosmetics. 
it's like a like a 30th anniversary pack or whatever for Blizzard. So that was that was that was a cool little shadow drop. But the big one. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of Diablo. Yes. Speaking of Diablo, the big one. I'm so excited about this. We have had, you know, rumors have been kind of like going around for years now about a remake of Diablo 2, a seminal classic. I, I Diablo 2 if, is in my top five, definitely, maybe top three most played games like of my entire life in terms of hours spent. So when they announced that Diablo 2 Resurrected is not only real, but looks fantastic and is coming to Switch this year, I, I was on cloud nine. Yeah, it looks really, really good. And obviously, it's been a long time since Diablo 2 was originally released on PC. Uh, Stone Cold Classic by every measure, every measure that I've seen at least, because I'm not a PC gamer, so I've never been able to play Diablo 2 personally. Yeah. However, I got on Twitter and I posted, and I had... I had several people come. I was like, dude, you need to play this. You haven't played Diablo 2? Oh, my Lord. You've got to play Diablo 2 Resurrected when it comes out. I'm yeah. just from people's reactions. I'm I'm sold. The remaster looks really good. Looking at the original graphics, looking at the uh, updated graphics. Diablo 2 Resurrected looks absolutely fantastic, especially for a video game remaster. If you're into dungeon crawlers, this looks like it's going to be a can't miss release from Blizzard. So... I, do, I sure as heck don't intend to miss it. I've seen all of these weird things about the, the cows and this bovine <laughs> realm that I've been really interested in. Yeah. I really want to see what that looks like in Diablo 2. I hope they keep that in all of its bovine glory. Something I really will be interested to see with Diablo 2 Resurrected is I wonder if they're going to add anything to it. Because obviously Diablo 3, mm. in the beginning of its lifespan didn't get off on the right foot. There was this auction house and all this weirdness going on, but right. they have changed Diablo three so, so much over the course of its lifespan. And especially when it came to the Nintendo switch, they added in, you know, going back to the legend of Zelda, don't get angry, Seth, but going back to the legend of <laughs> Zelda, they added in like that Ganondorf, that Nintendo, that legend of Zelda right. equipment into Diablo three. So there's a lot of opportunity there for exclusives or for add-ons both good and bad. I just really hope that Blizzard being Blizzard, because Blizzard, these are the Overwatch people. My biggest fear is that they somehow add microtransactions into Diablo 2. Because I don't know how many people have thought about it, but there is a better than fair chance that that happens with Diablo 2. And... I want to pick it up. I really do. I want to play it. But if Diablo 2 winds up getting microtransactions, that's that's just, especially in 2021, that's a taste that you really can't get out of your mouth when you're playing a game. If you know that's the game. If you know that's the only reason it basically exists. Yes, they're giving you something you want, but... You know, they're also throwing in a bunch of stuff that they really shouldn't be just under the guise of, hey, you know, we've done this great thing for you by remastering this absolute classic. Why don't you shill us out, you know, two, three, four, five dollars at a time here every other week for the next 10 years? Yeah, I honestly just being completely honest and and 
I, I really think that they are smart enough to not do that, especially now that the game is announced and we've seen extended gameplay and they've shown us a trailer that had no mention of any of that. For them to include, if the game comes out and it has these hidden predatory microtransactions, I would be very surprised. I think they are smart enough to know that the fan base will not respond well to that. On the surface, from what we've seen, it looks like it's a really loving remake. And also, just really quick shout out, I love that you can button press and shift back to the original graphics. Yes. I wish every remake did that. I love that so much. Like ever since that Halo Master Chief collection, I, I love that functionality. And it really just goes to show that, no, seriously, it is the original game running underneath it all. So I, I love that. And I just, it looks like a really loving kind of touch. And, and I'd be surprised if they took that approach to it. I'm not saying it's impossible. This, again, like you said, this is Blizzard we're talking about. I could see it going either way. But I, I again, I, I think they know that they would get just raked through the coals if they, if they did that. So as it stands, I'm looking forward to it. A lot of people are kind of uh, already giving uh, Nintendo a little bit of flack because, of course, there's the you know Skyward Sword being $60, and this is coming out, and I think it's going to be either $30 or $40. So... They're already kind of, people are having a field day with that already. So, but I'm excited. I love this game and uh, I can't wait to replay it on Switch. I just hope we get the Blizzard that has learned from Warcraft Remastered, that has learned from that China debacle from a couple of years ago. I hope we get right. The, I hope we get the Blizzard that has learned their lesson because there are still a lot of people out there with memories of, again, Warcraft remastered and the again the China thing from a couple years ago. Sure. So that that's where a lot of my fear comes from. Is this is the same company? So again, I really hope I'm wrong about that. We shall see. Fingers crossed. Another just really quick thing I want to shout out from uh, BlizzCon Online is that Nintendo was kind of like retweeting a lot of Overwatch Two stuff, which I found interesting. Overwatch Two is a game that we don't really know a ton about as of yet. It still doesn't even have any sort of confirmed release date. We assume it isn't coming out this year. But the fact that Nintendo was retweeting it and stuff, a Switch version of this game was never confirmed, as far as I know. And it seems to me like Nintendo is kind of low-key confirming it. I don't know why they would be retweeting it to their audience. I, I understand the first game is on Switch. But if they weren't confident that Overwatch 2 was coming as well... I don't know why they would be showcasing it to their fans. So I found that kind of interesting, like a low-key confirmation that Overwatch 2 is coming to Switch. Well, I Nintendo's been really weird. It hasn't just been the Zelda stuff. Nintendo has been really weird on social media this week. So yeah, I don't want to take that as ultimate confirmation. I think there's a I think there's a better than good chance that yes, Overwatch 2 is going to wind up coming to the Nintendo Switch. We spoke last week about Nintendo really making a push for online multiplayer games like that and bringing those to the Switch. Obviously, Overwatch right. 1 is already on the Switch, but just in the past six months, uh, Nintendo's made a push to get other really popular online multiplayer games like Fall Guys, like Among Us, and Apex Legends, of course, coming in just a couple weeks. So... Uh, I would um, I would assume that Nintendo is also going to make a big push to try to get Overwatch 2 to work on their Switch as well. Well, speaking of things making their way to Switch, 
kind of uh, after months of these leaks that we've reported on and some really kind of funny back and forth between Nintendo and Activision and Tony Hawk himself on Twitter this past Monday, uh, Tony Hawk's Pro Skater 1 and 2 has officially been announced to be coming to the Switch. Uh, The PS5 and Xbox Series X versions of the game are coming on March 26th. The Switch version is TBD 2021. So we know it's coming this year at some point. I've got to imagine it's not too far behind. I don't, I don't, you know, again, no confirmed date yet, but I don't imagine it's going to be super far behind these. Uh, The game's already been rated by the ESRB, this version of the game. So it's already fully playable and certified. So I have to imagine it's just a matter of locking down production stuff. And I I think we'll hear about a new date soon, but I'm excited for this. I'm excited to kind of see their take on this for the Switch, because if Crash 4 is any indication I'm kind of looking forward to seeing what they do with Tony Hawk. I am too. And this is what I was talking about with Nintendo being weird on social media, because the way the official announcement for this unfurled was really bizarre. Earlier on on in the week, we had Tony, was it Tony Hawk tweeting out, Hey, crash. How do you, you know, can you help me get my game onto the Nintendo switch? Basically, yeah. Crash retweeting, like, you'll have to talk to Activision. Activision, I think, tweeted out some emoji. And then Nintendo tweeted out, you know, the two eyes, the white eyes emoji. It was just a lot of this very tongue-in-cheek, weird half-speak. I don't know what was really going on. I don't know if anything... uh, It was just really bizarre the way everything happened. It was almost just like a wink and a nod from everybody. But it also seemed genuine in some cases. It was just, it was like four degrees of, hey, can we talk about this yet? I don't know. Can we talk about this yet? Hey, Nintendo, can we talk about this yet? And then Nintendo just posting again, that two two wide eyes emoji. And then I guess Crash, Tony Hawk, Activision, and Nintendo just all sat down for dinner and said, you know what? We'll just talk about it tomorrow. And then the very next day, Nintendo just posted, hey, Tony Hawk Pro Skater 1 and 2 remastered is coming to our platform. Yay! Basically, yeah. I mean, but again, these are great games. The Tony Hawk series has meant a lot to me. I I say all the time that that game basically cemented my musical tastes growing up with those games. So, again, I played this on PS4 when it came out and loved it. Love the treatment. It's it's honestly the first good Tony Hawk experience I've had in like a decade. So a, a very welcome change of pace. And yeah, when this comes to Switch, I, I am definitely going to double dip. I, I love these games. And something I'm specifically really looking forward to when it does come to the Nintendo Switch is the graphics, the remaster for Tony Hawk's Pro Skater 1 and 2 looks really good. It does. Yeah. But for me, there's something about the vibrancy of the colors, the way the visuals pop from the original release on the PlayStation and the Nintendo 64 of the original Tony Hawk's Pro Skater 1 and 2. And as pretty as the remaster is, it just doesn't pop as much for me. And of course, when they bring it to the Nintendo Switch, with the Nintendo Switch being a technically less powerful console, that means the visuals just like in crash four are more than likely going to be altered a little bit. And I'm actually looking forward to that because if crash four is any indication with crash four is kind of more cell shaded look on the Nintendo switch, 
I think that bodes well for, in my mind at least, for Tony Hawk's Pro Skater 1 and 2. I think the visual fidelity on the Nintendo Switch is going to be a little bit more reminiscent of those original games. I think they're going to find a slightly more cartoony visual style. And I think, in my opinion, it's going to wind up popping more. And it's going to speak to me personally. I know there's a lot of people that love the way it looks on the PlayStation 4 and Xbox One and all the new gen systems. But I really hope when they do, when they rejig the graphics for the Nintendo Switch, that it does wind up having a slightly more cel-shaded, cartoony look to it. Because at the at the end of the day, these are arcade sports games. So it is always yeah. kind of weird to see photorealistic arcade sports titles. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I, I don't need it to look photoreal. I actually, like you, I, I kind of prefer that more, slightly more cartoony, still, I mean, they should still look like humans, of course. But uh, but I, I'm down for a little more vibrancy, a little more color. We'll have to see. That That's honestly, that's probably the kind of thing that they're trying to lock down before announcing a date. But I, I wouldn't think that this is going to come out too much later. So we're going to keep our eyes on it. I'm looking forward to it. But speaking of something that has kind of uh, changed dramatically, I suppose, during development, uh, if you'll allow me that weird uh, half segue. Uh, um, I'll allow it. <laughs> I'll allow it. <laughs> uh, the Forest of Illusion uh, has leaked a late build of Dinosaur Planet. For those that don't know, Dinosaur Planet is the final game that Rare made on the GameCube and actually eventually ended up becoming Star Fox Adventures, kind of the last Rare game of the Nintendo era, which we've talked about a lot on the show. They apparently acquired this from like a private collector and ended up putting this entire build, a near final build of Dinosaur Planet, before it ended up getting reconfigured into Star Fox Adventures. So final, in fact, that Star Fox is even still playable in this version of Dinosaur Planet. It's really kind of interesting. I always love when stories like this come out. Remember when that build, that original pre-release build of Sonic the Hedgehog came out those months ago? Yeah. Yeah, when it comes to video game history and stuff like that, I really really like stories like this when they come out. I love seeing the development process. I love seeing early builds and the stream of consciousness really that a game goes through, not even the developers necessarily, but the stream of consciousness of the game itself that it goes through from its alpha build all the way up to its final release form. And uh, I really wish I could get my hands on this. It'd be so, so fun to mess around on. It was, it was definitely kind of a surprise to, to see this kind of come out. And another big surprise that we got this week was when out of absolutely nowhere, uh, the creator of Stardew Valley, Eric Baroni, announced and released, announced and released, that, let me just say that again, a Stardew Valley board game, that which I guess he was working on for over two years in secret. And he announces this thing, releases it out of nowhere, Shadow Drop, a you know a very in-depth Stardew Valley board game, cooperative play, and it sells out inside of its first day. I mean, what a crazy story. Yeah, we were actually going to link to the website where you could buy it yeah. if you were interested in getting it, but again sold out it's amazing that developers can do anything like this in secret a project like this the the fact that nobody leaked it the fact that 
they were still able to do all their duties because obviously that Stardew Valley 1.5 patch came out recently. So he's been working yeah. on the game. They've been doing a lot of work on the game and still somehow able to find time to fully develop a tabletop board game based on one of the most popular, one of the most omnipresent indie games on the planet. Stardew Valley is a massive, massive success. It's a huge, huge indie game with millions of players. So with all the potential eyes that could have been on this, it's amazing that it never came out before it was actually released. Especially in the past few years, leaks have become almost guaranteed with a bunch of major projects. So it's amazing to see. Granted, this isn't a video game. This is just a tabletop game. But the fact that any developer, any publisher of note can keep a full-on project like this uh, completely out of public eye until they're ready to release it. This isn't just some random piece of merch. This isn't just a pin or a t-shirt. This is a full-on gaming product. So uh, I just, yeah, kind of came out of nowhere. It surprised the heck out of both of us. And then, of course, by the time we saw it, it was already sold out. I mean, yeah. I mean, it's crazy. And it looks really cool, like a really in-depth board game. I hope they do a second print soon because I'd like to buy it. I mean, it's got everything. I was reading the the write-up that Eric Baroni posted um, saying that it was important to him that it had everything represented from the game, from the villagers to the crops to the animals, fishing, mining, and all that stuff uh, in the game. And and it sounded like they, they wanted to make a cooperative experience that you can play with one to four players and it's it's got kind of a complexity to it there's a lot of parts so i'm really interested to check it out maybe we'll report back if we end up getting our hands on it but this was just such a cool story i mean how crazy is it that he just sat there and worked on this in addition to continuing work on the game proper like you mentioned we just had a huge update for that game uh with split screen co-op and all this stuff and Meanwhile, you're making a whole board game. Like, man, I I mean, I got to admire it. It's it's really impressive. And especially in the past decade or so, for those who aren't aware, tabletop gaming has really been getting a much bigger audience within America. Sure. A lot of a lot of really involved tabletop and board games have been coming out especially in the past decade. Big games like Catan and Ticket to Ride, they've been up for a while, but you're starting to see a ton of very involved experiences on the tabletop genre. Obviously, uh, tabletop RPGs like Dungeons and Dragons, they're also very much coming back into popularity thanks to Critical Role and a lot of celebrities right. coming out and saying that they play Dungeons and Dragons and tabletop games kind of paralleling that. A lot of tabletop games are becoming much more popular as well. I have a lot of friends that are super into tabletop games. Obviously, tabletop games have taken a major hit in the pandemic, but as an industry, it's been very silently growing for a while now. It doesn't surprise me at all that that this got created, and I'm very intrigued to see what it looks like. Again, it's just really surprising that we didn't know about it until it was available to purchase. Not even pre-order, available to purchase. Yeah, it's a thing that he made and it's done. I, I got Again, I just got to respect it. But again, um, we do have a couple of Super Smash Brothers Ultimate related stories to kind of close out our news roundup this week. And the first of which being that it was announced 
earlier this week that a full, as expected, a full 35-minute Mr. Sakurai Presents on Pyra and Mithra is happening next week on the 4th at 6 o'clock a.m. Pacific time. Nintendo did feel the need to go ahead and clarify because... Of course they did. That no additional fighters will be announced during the presentation because, you know, if they didn't say that, everybody would be like, where's Crash? Where's Sora? <laughs> it's fair. But, uh, but yeah, you know, we said last week, we knew this was coming, but it is cool that it's coming so soon. Yeah, and obviously I geeked out about Pyra and Mithra last week. I'm so excited to see them coming to Super Smash Brothers. I am going to be watching every second of that probably 10 times when Mr. Sakurai Presents comes next week. But obviously very much looking forward to Mr. Sakurai Presents next week on Pyra and Mithra. But in addition to that, Seth, you're a spirit. Yes, yes, I'm finally a spirit in Smash. I made it. Maybe in the next game I'll be playable. <laughs> Baby steps, Seth. Baby steps. <laughs> but all joking aside, what we're talking about is with the release of Bravely Default 2 yesterday, Nintendo released a couple spirits in Super Smash Bros. Ultimate for Seth and Gloria from Bravely Default 2. So those are available now during a special event. If you want to grab those, uh, jump into Super Smash Bros. and they should be in the spirit board. So check them out. I know I am definitely going to be doing that this weekend myself. Oh, yeah. Got to. I, I I have such a like fear of missing out with that stuff because there have been a few spirits where I missed out. And then by the time I get around to it, they're gone. I have to wait for like six months or whatever for them to be back in the rotation. Uh, <laughs> so, And I'm so excited, Seth. We're only a couple days away from March, which means Super Mario items in Animal Crossing. Oh, yes. Time to spend all of the in-game money. But right here at the end of the news drop, we just want to say thank you to all of you listening to all in a Nintendo podcast right now. Thank you to every single one of you that hangs out with us each and every Saturday and makes us part of your weekly rotation. Do please like and subscribe to all in a Nintendo podcast on whatever service you're listening to us on, be it iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, or Spotify. And reach out to us on Twitter at all in podcast or on Facebook at All In Podcast. And if you have any opinions at all about any of the news stories in this week's news drop, do reach out to us and let us know. Are you excited about the Blizzard Arcade Collection? Are you excited about Tony Hawk's Pro Skater 1 and 2 coming to the Nintendo Switch? Reach out. Let us know. And we will be breaking down absolutely every second of that Pokemon Presents later on in our main segment. But right now, it's time to get the party started. Again, it is Pokemon Day, the 25th anniversary of the original release of Pokemon, a franchise that has gone on to define an entire industry, much less a genre, one of the most iconic gaming franchises of all time. And we decided to have a full episode celebration of those adorable pocket monsters here today, starting with our indie showcase. We are going to be talking about a game we really think all of you aspiring Pokemon trainers out there should take a look into. It is a three-on-three -three Metroidvania turn-based RPG from Moirai Studios. We're talking Monster Sanctuary. So Monster Sanctuary, it is a, and this is, I'm, I'm reading this right from the, the game's website because I thought this line was really good uh, and it describes it perfectly. It is a pixel art monster collecting game featuring Metroidvania-like side view visuals, exploration, and challenging turn-based combat. And it is very much, you know, it was really important to us that we recommend a game in the Indie Showcase this week that would definitely appeal to Pokemon fans, but also kind of give them something that might be a little bit out of your typical 
gaming purview and monster sanctuary very much has a little bit of Pokemon influence and DNA in there, but, but I think they do some really interesting things that really help it stand apart. I was really surprised by this game. I've got to admit, obviously I've played a ton of Metroidvanias in my time. So many Metroidvanias, but I have never played a Metroidvania turn-based RPG before. I was really intrigued to try that combination out. Was it going to turn out to be peanut butter and chocolate or was it going to turn out to be peanut butter and green beans? I had to find out for (laughs) myself. And I've got to say, it leans much, much further toward the peanut butter and chocolate side of the spectrum. And again, just, just that mashing up of genres I thought was really, really interesting and enough and worthy, essentially, of just looking into just based on that. But what Monster Sanctuary is, outside of this genre mashup that we've mentioned a couple times, you play as a monster keeper inside of what is effectively a huge biological preserve in what seemingly is a post-apocalyptic environment. You are a member of this monster sanctuary. More specifically, you are a member, one of four special bloodlines within the monster sanctuary that each get their own quote unquote spectral familiar and what these spectral familiars are, uh, you know, just to put it in layman's terms, it's your starter Pokemon at the very beginning of the game, you choose from one of four beasts and that acts as your spectral familiar, essentially your companion, your direct companion on this adventure. You have your choice between a lion, an eagle, a wolf, and a frog with different elemental properties and attacks. I went with the lion. What about you, buddy? I ended up going with the toad um, just because, you know, I love frogs. But also, each one has got a really different set of skills. As a matter of fact, every monster in the game um, have got an enormous kind of skill tree. Um, and, and, and the starter, you know, kind of spectral familiar is no different, but one of the things that I found really interesting when you pick this character, I mean, this is, this familiar has been with your bloodline going back for literally in their own words before they can even remember. And they're, they kind of almost act as like a guide or a mentor. They're not, you know, you are growing with them and you are like leveling up and stuff with them, but it's kind of interesting. It's an interesting dynamic to have, it, like it's so different from the relationship you have with your starter Pokemon. You know, the, you've got this kind of like old wizened spectral familiar to guide you through this adventure. Yeah, it's a very different relationship. It's not just some monster that's going to be traveling behind you saying Pika Pika. No, this is, we talked about mentors last week. This is essentially your mentor in addition to being a monster that can battle on your behalf. Uh, That is not to say that the other monsters that you come across in this game won't start to draw a lot of Pokemon parallels because they absolutely will. In addition to your spectral familiar, you can recruit upwards of a hundred different monsters to fight with you on your team. Again, drawing a lot of parallels to Pokemon, but outside of the obvious parallels, there is a lot different about many of the systems in this game. Very, very much so. That that really is kind of where the similarities end for the most part. There, there is a, a little bit of a, a typing that they also have very similarly to Pokemon, but the you know, the world exploration, the combat is completely different. So, you know, we mentioned earlier that it's it's got that Metroidvania uh, aspect to it. 
that that genre is 100% in the game that that is the ultimate you know the, the sort of overarching genre of all of it the way that you will navigate the game's world is very much a metroidvania it is very much a uncovering portions of the map and solving puzzles and exploring the environment and doing some backtracking on occasion mm-hmm. that that's very much the kind of like main interaction with the game yeah and you will occasionally just like in any metroidvania you will occasionally get new abilities and new items that will help you with traversal you'll get to one point in the game which you clearly cannot access but you will eventually get an item or a skill that will allow you to get to those previously inaccessible parts of the map again it's a metroidvania just instead of blasting things as samus or instead of slicing things with a sword as alucard all the combat is done through 3v3 turn-based rpg battles a la most jrpgs and it it really really fits well i think from about the second or third encounter onward once you actually get a couple monsters The vast majority of the encounters you're going to have in this game are going to be 3v3. Your team of three monsters versus a team of three wild monsters. Now, there are boss battles, and the boss battles, for the most part, are all single enemies. And there are a couple other battles that aren't just specifically 3v3. We'll get to those in a few seconds. But the vast majority of the combat situations you're going to find yourself in are going to be your three monsters against three wild monsters. They just always travel in packs of three. I don't know. There's just yeah. some trinity going on. There's just this charmed power of three. But the vast majority of the wild monster fights you're going to get into are going to be in groups of three versus your group of three. Now, you don't just have a party of three, though. You can actually have an active party of six. Again, just like Pokemon. But you can freely change out your active party of three. When you start combat, you can choose from any of the six monsters you have in your active party to be your team of three. And even beyond that, you are very quickly going to accrue more monsters than just that party of six. You are going to start to accrue dozens of monsters and you will have the ability to really switch between most of them on the fly to insert them and take them out of your party of six whenever you want to. It's a very seamless a uh, very seamless part of the game. And uh, a seamless part of the game is something that I found myself thinking a lot when I was playing this game because there's a lot of really, really good design choices in this game. Not just when it comes to combat, but when it comes to quality of life things and making things a little bit more convenient on the player. They have, because there is going to be a lot of grinding because it's an RPG. They have a way that you can uh, increase the battle speed. And I almost immediately set the battle speed to two times speed. That's the fastest it can go. But still, the fact that it can go to two times speed was was a huge help. A huge help in me being able to get through this game. And another thing that I really like, specifically quality of life, really good design choices are your party gets fully healed at the end of each battle, which is a design yes. that I absolutely, absolutely love. That's one of the biggest things that's hampered RPGs for me for years is the thought that you're constantly having to fight these monsters and feeling like you're having to hold back your strongest attacks because you don't know if you may have to use those in the next fight. So for many RPGs, how many RPGs have you played, buddy, where it was just, it felt like a battle of attrition where you're just using the same boring attacks trying to make sure you didn't die against these low level enemies 
because you didn't want to use your big special attacks in case you ran into something else. So you had all of these grindy battles against low-level enemies that you're using all of these normal attacks on in this battle of attrition. But no, in this RPG, you fully heal at the end of each fight, which allows each fight, which allows you to go all out in each fight, and it allows the difficulty of the game to be that much more oppressive. And I really like that. Yeah, definitely. I, I love that too. It, it really feels like you can treat every battle as if it were your last. Like you can really just, you know, go all out, really put everything you have into every combat encounter. And, and I and I love that because the, you know, the health refills between battles and also it's not tied to like an expendable resource that doesn't regenerate. It's tied to like mana, which will also refill between battles and regenerates on a cycle between turns as well. So I, I really like that. And it's, you know, combat I think is probably the most complex moving part of this game. Oh yeah. Because it is, it's, it's three V three, but there is quite a bit of strategy involved, quite a lot of moving parts, quite a lot of nerdy little stats that you can get into. Like I said, all of the dozens and dozens of monsters in this game have got their own fully fleshed out skill trees. Um, yeah. You know, Another really cool quality of life thing is that your monsters will all sort of level up pretty much in tandem with each other. You don't have to, you know, you, you won't have to like grind up monsters to, you know, match everything. You can kind of swap them out at will and th they'll be around about, you know, the, the level of your current party, which, which is another thing I really like. And man, the, the combat has got a lot of little layers to it from everything from debuffs to buffs to heals to elemental attacks very much kind of like pokemon where certain elements will do more damage to other elements to resistances to the concept of combos this game's got a really interesting concept where damage will actually increase as actions are performed successfully and you even get like a rating at the end of every battle, which can increase your loot. I mean, there's so, so many little systems in place here. It's really impressive that they make all of this work together even half as well as they do. That's honestly the thing that I'm probably most impressed with when it comes to this game is there's a lot of little, very good design choices. But when it comes to the battle system, it is balanced extraordinary well considering how many layers there are to everything because yes you have your battle skills your normal battle skills uh each battle skill winds up taking a certain amount of mana obviously the more powerful battle skills will take more however you regenerate a certain amount of mana in between each turn like seth was talking about so you could be using a skill that doesn't take up as much mana as you can regenerate so you could be using right less powerful abilities, but you're slowly getting that mana back for more powerful abilities. Or you could just equip items or weapons that supercharge your monster's mana regeneration so that you can just continue to go all out. Because when it comes to equipment, you can equip one item and three accessories to every monster you have in the game. And not just items, you can feed them you can yes. feed them. There's a lot of food items in the game, and you can use those to increase their stats as well. There's a ton of items in the game. You are going to be getting items 
constantly. But that's another thing that I think is really well balanced because everything, every little aspect of that, they do, they, you do get a lot out of. There wasn't a single facet of that part of the game that I thought was underrepresented or I didn't think was being used to its fullest potential because uh, talking about all the items you're going to get, talking about the food that you can feed your monsters, talking about the equipment you can give to your monsters, even beyond the elemental weaknesses or resistances, you will find enemies that are weak or resistant to physical or magical attacks. So you can have an enemy that may be weak toward fire attacks, but is strong necessarily against physical attacks. So if you, right. like my lion, if you have a physical fire attack, those two might kind of offset. However, if you can use a fire, if you can use a magical fire attack, then you can really start to do some damage. And with all the monsters you're going to wind up getting in this game, you are going to want, you are going to want to start going through and looking at all of those different monsters, seeing what their elemental properties are, seeing what they're strong against, seeing what they're weak against, because you are definitely have to start to exploit those, especially once you get around the midway point in the game. Because when it comes to Pokemon, Pokemon has always been a relatively easy game franchise. It's an incredibly fun franchise. But it's not really hard. It's incredibly simple. It's one monster versus one monster. And you know if you're going up against a water trainer, you know to bring your electric or your grass types. When it comes to this game, there is so much more to consider. So much more to consider. Because the vast majority of the monsters have multiple elemental uh, properties. The vast majority of the monsters have weaknesses or resistances to either, again, physical or special attacks. All the monsters in the game have, like Seth said, their own skill trees with their own individual abilities. There's, And again, when you're fighting 3v3 as opposed to just 1v1, uh, I saw somebody I talk about this game in terms of like a spreadsheet, and I think that was actually a very good way to put it because there are so many things, so many numbers, so many things that you have to account for, especially once you really start to get into the game. And right. it can feel daunting. The game, in my opinion, even though it really kind of thrusts you into everything, it doesn't hold your hand for more than the first encounter in the game. And then it just kind of lets you loose and says, have fun. But the way everything uh, the way everything escalates in the game, I think, makes it a very natural kind of integration for the player and for the character. There's so much going on in this game. But the way that it ramped up, the way that things kind of naturally and organically started to fold into the combat despite how much is going on i've i never really felt overwhelmed right i agree it's it's really impressive and again i i can't believe it works half as well as it does this is not the kind of game again there's a lot of stuff to consider a lot of stats and skills and gear and you're very much going to want to formulate strategies and build monsters around other monsters like my my main kind of like team is around like centered around poison and debuffs and stuff like that, which are super, super important. Yeah. And, you know, like there's all these kind of little min maxi things that you can do. It's very appealing in that way for a certain type of gamer. Like if you like that kind of hyper, you know, min maxi nature, like like you would find in a Disgaea game or something. Like if you're a numbers guy like Seth. <laughs> I can be. I can be. This there are certain games, like when you look at something like a Disgaea, where I get a little intimidated by that. But just like you said, this makes it very, very palatable. 
in in a in a way that I think is super impressive. And I, I wanted to touch on that combo system uh, because the combo system I think is really really unique. There is a percentage of damage that increases depending on the number of actions that you take that are basically beneficial to the combat. So if you utilize an attack that is going against type, like a super effective attack, that is actually going to increase the amount of damage output. Likewise with buffs and debuffs that are applied. So in in the individualized turn, you've got this rolling counter of increased damage and you can play with that in really interesting ways. You can kind of compose your party to have like your big heavy hitter in the back so it can take the most advantage of the damage increase that you're going to set up for them. And I think that's a really kind of interesting mechanic. And that's that's feeds into the way that they're going to wind up grading you on a five-star uh, system at the end of the combat, which then feeds into your loot. So again, it's just so impressive. As you said, that spreadsheet of systems on display is mind-boggling. Because it's not just about trying to decide which attack could theoretically be the strongest against an enemy. Because like I said, the balance in this game is incredibly well handled. There were so, so many times I used an attack that an opponent was resistant against because that attack happened to hit a lot of times and build up my combo counter. Or because that attack caused a debuff that was even more beneficial than the extra damage I would have done if I had chosen an attack they were weak against. Because how many RPGs have we played, Seth? How many RPGs were debuffs were just basically annoyances where they weren't really uh, affecting the outcome of the fight? How many RPGs have you played where poison was more or less just an annoyance and not really a factor? It is a huge factor in this game. I can legitimately count probably on one hand the number of RPGs I've played with poison where poison was actually a substantial, was something you were actively trying to go for because it gave you a tangible advantage in a fight. Just about every RPG I've ever played has some type of poison in it, but the vast majority of them, they're just, you know, 50 HP out of a pool of 2000, you know, (laughs) right. Not so with this going back to, again, the balance when it comes to all the different debuffs, these are substantial debuffs. So whenever you're choosing an attack, you have so much to consider. You have whether or not the opponent is weak or resistant to it. You have how many times is this attack going to hit so it can build up my combo meter? What debuffs or buffs does this give me? Does this has does this attack have a secondary effect of healing me? Does it trigger other abilities that my other characters have? There are so, so many things to consider in this game. It's just incredibly impressive. Again, we think if you like Pokemon, you'll like this. But this is so so much more complicated than Pokemon has ever, ever been. And I really, really think that Pokemon could take a few cues from this game. Pokemon has integrated 2v2 and even 3v3 in special circumstances, but I really appreciated the depth of strategy involved in Monster Sanctuary. 
Yeah, there's so much depth to it. There, there's, you know, you got to consider like all of your little skills. Like I have my teams like, oh, whenever there's poison, like my team is getting healed for every enemy that's poisoned. And also my heals are doing additional stuff and my buffs are doing this and debuffs are doing that. It's There's so much. No action is wasted. You know, it's it's all so well considered. And I think to go back to something you said earlier and something that I think we absolutely need to stop and talk about is that because there is so much more strategy, because there are so many more moving parts, it does mean that the game has free reign to sort of impose a certain level of difficulty on the player. Lord. (laughs) This game does not pull punches. This is a challenging game and it wears it very much on its sleeve. It it even says so in all of its descriptive text on the eShop. And I mean, it's, it very much knows that it is going to be a challenging time. And there, there are situations in this game that can legitimately feel like you are just like punching a brick wall. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yes. Once you get about halfway (laughs) through the game specifically, what Seth is talking about, there's a place called the sun palace. I ran into this bad guy and I would, what I told Seth is like, yeah, I just ran into a brick wall. I really did. Because, uh, again, you have to utilize all the monsters at your disposal. You have to use all of their different abilities, all of their different strengths and weaknesses. There will be times, especially when you get into the second half of the game, you are going to need fairly specific teams with fairly specific setups. You are going to need to basically specifically counter that boss. And it's not just as simple as in Pokemon, where you can just, again, bring an electric type to a water fight. No, you have to have an entire team set up. You have to know what monsters they're using. If you have them, you can then use your knowledge about your own monsters to help formulate a plan against them. There are some times you're probably going to lose quite a few fights in this game. I do really like the fact that when you fight a boss, if you die to a boss, you simply get respawned in the room right outside of where that boss was. If you lose in a normal fight, same thing. But if you lose in a normal fight, the game is like, really, bro, you lost a normal fight and the game takes some gold away from you. But if you lose to a boss, it doesn't punish you that way because the game knows how difficult it winds up getting. The game, again, doesn't really hold your hand. But once you get about halfway through, once you've gotten a good grip on everything the game is about, then the game is just like, all right, We've given you enough time. We're going to punch you in the face now. Yeah. You're going to learn today, basically. Basically. It's, again, pulls no punches at all. It's very much wears that on its sleeve. So that's something to keep in mind, right? I think there are a lot of players that will enjoy that. And and I think that there are a lot of players who might get turned off by something like that, especially coming off of something like Pokemon, if you're used to that easier, more generalized, all-around level of difficulty. However... You know, this this game is not like that. This game is very much a challenging, strategic, you know, you are going to have to give it your all um, constantly. And the game does feed into that. So definitely something to keep in mind that you are not going to just be able to breeze your way through this game with the same party makeup, with exactly the same monsters, changing up your strategy zero times. You're not going to be able to get away with that here. You're going to have to you know, grind, level up, spend your skill points wisely, bring the right party to the right situation, learn these encounters, learn these systems. 
it's really rewarding. It's a super rewarding combat system, but it is going to demand that you get the most out of it. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, man, we, there's so many, when it comes to RPGs, of course, there's always so much to talk about. We haven't even mentioned the fact that yes, just like Pokemon, there is an evolution mechanic in this game. We haven't even mentioned the fact that just like Pokemon, there is an evolution mechanic in this game. It's not handled as, uh, simply leveling up a monster the way you evolve your few monsters that are uh, available to evolve. There's not too many of them, unfortunately, but the few monsters that are available to evolve, it is a rare item drop. And then you take it to a specific place and you use the item on your monster at this specific place. And then they evolve. And just like with Pokemon, the, the drawback to Pokemon evolution being that, Uh, They may stop learning attacks if you evolve them, or in many Pokemon's cases, they may learn attacks at a later level. There is a technical drawback to evolving monsters in Monster Sanctuary as well, because when you turn them into a different monster, they get a whole different skill tree. So that's another thing that you have to account for. I still would have liked to have seen more monsters evolve uh, here in Monster Sanctuary. I think that would have been cool. That's probably the one thing in this game that I don't think was as well realized as it could have been, because even though they introduce evolution in monster sanctuary, I think there's only 10 monsters that can evolve and there's only two stage evolutions. There aren't any three stage evolutions or mega evolutions or anything like that. There's just 10 monsters or 10, 12 monsters in the game that can evolve one level. So as well-balanced, as incredibly well-balanced, frankly, as the vast majority of the game is, I do think this was the one aspect of the gameplay that I thought the game didn't get the most out of it could have. I could see that. Yeah, I agree with that. It, it would be nice to see them go, go a little bit further with that for sure. Maybe in a sequel or something, but yeah, definitely the combat is is definitely the most meat um, you will do a lot of exploring as we've already talked about in that sort of Metroidvania trapping. There's, you know, hidden areas to explore. There's puzzles and stuff like this. Yeah. There's a couple of really good switch puzzles in this game. Yeah, absolutely. But I, I think we should also kind of stop and talk about the presentation yep. a little bit of the game because it, it's, again, it is a pixel art style game. And I think for the most part, it's pretty to look at. I do like a lot of the monster designs. That's obviously a very important part of any monster taming game are the monsters themselves. I think for the most part, they're fairly well done. I like the ones that are based very clearly around Japanese folklore uh, in particular. Um, There are a couple, you know, there are a couple duds that don't quite land, but for the most part, I think they do a good job. I, I will say if I did have any sort of like minor complaint, I do think that in the case of a lot of the music and in a lot of the kind of environmental detail, not that it's bad. I do just kind of feel like in some cases, not all of them, there are some standouts, but in some cases, I think some of it is just a touch on the generic side. This game desperately needed some foreground elements. Yeah. Because when you stop and look at it, the game looks pretty it does it looks pretty but yes ultimately a lot of the design choices specifically the environmental design choices can start to feel a little generic it it almost feels like there wasn't an actual environmental or character designer in a lot of cases but technically i mean the pixel art is pretty especially the 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 background 
the far background pixel art, yeah. there's like four or five layers to the background and it looks good. Right. But there's just something about not having any foreground elements that admittedly, yes, does does make it feel a little on the generic side, unfortunately. And, I mean, the foreground elements essentially are like just the platforms, really. Yeah. It's, there's not much more to it than that. And going back to the music, like you were talking about, a lot of the music, a lot of the first couple areas really were not impressing me with the tunes. I do think the music does get quite a bit better. Specifically, I mentioned the Sun Palace a little earlier. I thought the Sun right. Palace track was really good. I thought the uh, dungeon track was really good. The music, in my opinion, does get better as the game goes along. And speaking of music, one thing that Seth and I both recommend. <laughs> uh, there, is a there is a standard battle theme. However, another one of the little quality of life things that we really like about this title is there is a hidden battle theme you can turn on in the options. That battle theme is 10 times better than the normal oh, battle yeah. theme in the game. I would highly recommend if you play Monster Sanctuary, one of the first things you do is go into the options menu and turn on that alternate battle theme because that is a banging track. That is probably the best track in the game. It is. Yeah, it definitely is. When you told me about that, I was like, let me go check this out. What is he talking about? And I was like, oh, this is way better <laughs> than the normal battle track. That's the kind of track that gets you pumped up for a fight, for sure. The regular battle theme versus the alternate battle theme can legitimately, can honestly completely change your outlook on the game because the normal battle theme, yeah, frankly, really isn't that good. But once I started using the alternate battle theme, I had a much more positive outlook on the game as a whole. It's amazing how one simple music track, especially because it's a music track you have to listen to so often. Right. Exactly. It's amazing how just that one change can really change your outlook on something. So again, if you if you play Monster Sanctuary, use the alternate battle theme. You will thank us. <laughs> yeah, and thank us later. But again, I, I you know I don't want to. I don't want to poo-poo it too much. It's not bad. It's it's just a little, you know, for I think for the most part, a little generic. It's there are definitely some standout tracks. Um, I I like it. It's it's not horrible. It's just a little forgettable or whatever. But in terms of my complaints with the game, that's that's really all I, I have to say negatively about it. I, I come away from this game really, really impressed. Considering all of the elements that have to interplay together all of the things that this game has going on, like it is frankly astonishing how well this game makes it work and how palatable it is to, to go through this game and sort of like wrap your head around all of these systems. There are so many games that try to do this and it just comes off as obtuse and intimidating. And monster sanctuary has just found a really beautiful way of conveying everything it's trying to, really elegantly to the player. And I think the last thing we'll just touch on here in our indie showcase on Monster Sanctuary is a few of the things you can expect from the from the Keeper's Stronghold, kind of the main hub area of the game where you're going to be doing a lot of your shopping. As you rank up, you'll be able to get new items. You'll be able to take all the extra monster eggs you acquire, and instead of just having a bloated party, you can use those to get rewards by increasing the army in the Keeper's Stronghold. And talking about how well-balanced the gameplay is, also in the Keeper Stronghold, you can take part, once you've gained enough rank, you can take part in actual online PvP battles. And that's really cool. Yeah. 
yeah, you can go head to head against friends or, you know, people around the world and go into these like monster keeper battles online. Really cool. I mean, you, the game allows you, I really like that it gates it behind that rank because the game does kind of make sure that you are experienced enough with the systems and with the keeper battles in general before tackling it. So really interesting that they have that in the game. Again, just one more impressive thing that I, I, really shocked they were able to throw into this package. But I think we've certainly talked enough about this title at this point. Again, it's an RPG, so there's always a lot to talk about. Even though it's a Metroidvania, this game is going to run you about 30 hours for an initial playthrough. If you want to try to finish everything, I believe you're looking at around 60 or 70 hours. So do not let that Metroidvania tag fool you. This is an RPG, and it will sink quite a bit of your time. But have you sunk any time into Monster Sanctuary? Have you actually tried Team 17 and Moirai Studios' interesting genre-bending RPG Metroidvania? Let us know. Reach out to us on Facebook and Twitter and tell us what you thought of Monster Sanctuary. But continuing our celebration of 25 years of Pokemon, we are now going to be talking about one of the most iconic parts of the franchise. The Gym Leaders. For the entirety of the series, they have served as essentially the gatekeepers, as the boss battles, as the milestones in each different generation, in each different set of games. The gym leader is up there with one of those infallible tropes of Pokemon, right up there with the choosing of the starter Pokemon, with the professor character, with the rival character. The gym leader is just one of those Pokemon mainstays. And we are going to be counting down our absolute favorites for you this week in our top five. Yes, so... One stipulation that we both sort of brought into our lists is that we wanted to ensure that we had representatives from different generations. We didn't just want to stack up everybody from Gen 1, because trust me, we could have (laughs) with just like Gen 1 and Gen 8 in particular. Making this list, I was like, man, there have been so many great gym leaders throughout Pokemon history. Yeah, I completely agree with you, especially for us gamers of a certain age. We have very fond memories of those older titles. So, yes, uh, I I honestly probably could have done a top 10 of trainers just of Generation 1 and Generation 8. But there are certainly trainers, there are certainly gym leaders from the other generations worth talking about, worth mentioning, that do stand on their own two feet. Absolutely. And my number five is one of the kind of, maybe kind of a cult of the new choice but, uh, but my number five is Nessa from Generation 8 Pokemon Sword and Shield. Very nice. Nessa is a water type gym leader, of course. Gives you the water badge uh, from the town of Holbury in the Galar region. And she's kind of, I, I think myself and many others, basically fell in love with Nessa from the moment we were first introduced to her. Um, basically purely on her design. She's got like one of my favorite character designs really of any character in the history of the series, her Galarian gym uniform. For those who haven't played sword and shield, which what are you doing? Go play sword and shield. Um, they, they all, the gym leaders of this gen kind of have these gym uniforms. Almost. They, they almost look like soccer uniforms. They, they really, the gallery region treats 
these competitions like an actual competition. It's like a sporting event that take place in like these big arena battles. And um, Nessa's uniform actually kind of looks like it doubles as like a two piece swimsuit. And I, I love the layers of blue that that's like in her hair. I just, I love her design, man. She's, she's one of my favorite character designs. And also worth noting in her character, she's not just a gym leader. She, she's actually a part-time model. According to her league card, she actually adopts completely different personalities for both. When she's in her kind of like model mode, she is calm and collected. But then when you've got her on the on the battlefield in the arena, she is like a fierce, you know, hot-headed competitor. Uh, her team's got Goldine, Aracuda, and Dreadmaw. And I also love that. I love that she kind of represents the the new Dreadmaw is very much almost like the almost like the Blastoise of that generation. And I love that she showcases that and she gigantamaxes that thing basically as soon as she can. Yeah. And um, I, I just, I really, really love Nessa. Yeah. Nessa's great. I probably spend more time in Holbury than I did any town in sword and shield, just because you've got sure. those stun Fisk there in the cave right next to the town that are great sources of XP for low level Pokemon. And yeah, that dreadnought when it gigantamaxes and it looks like, Gamera, basically. Yeah, basically. <laughs> yeah, this so is fantastic. Good. Well, for my number five, I am going with Generation 2. I'm going all the way back to gold and silver. My favorite. Pokemon really isn't. Yeah, Gen, Gen 2 is actually my favorite generation as well, specifically Crystal, but that's another story for another day. Pokemon is kind of very famously a, a relatively easy franchise there's not a lot of true challenge involved i think most relatively experienced gamers can get through without suffering more than one or two defeats right yeah this isn't bragging this is just because i grind way too much when it comes to games like these but i actually haven't lost a match since Generation 2, at least a story match. I haven't lost a single-player story match since Generation 2. I very, very vividly remember the last time I lost a match. So my number five is Whitney from Goldenrod City ah. in Generation 2. Again, the games aren't very difficult, but when you get to Goldenrod City and you meet Whitney, because Whitney is a master of normal type Pokemon. She gives you the plain badge when you defeat her, and especially when you're dealing with normal types, you're really not expecting much. However, she got that mill tank. When she <laughs> throws out that mill tank, <laughs> and a lot of old and even new gamers with the release of Soul Silver and Heart Gold, a lot of old and new gamers have very vivid memories of dealing with that mill tank if you didn't specifically prepare for it if you didn't power yeah. level your pokemon if you didn't specifically prepare for that mill tank it could very easily wipe out your entire party because of one thing yep roll out roll it as an attack that continues to gain power over the course of five turns it's only got a 90 percent accuracy so it could conceivably miss but even though it starts out as a relatively weak attack by the time it gets to turn three, there's a lot of Pokemon that her mill tank can one shot at equal oh, yeah. level. So, uh, I, I mean, there's really not much more else to say. She's got that stonking mill tank with a ton of HP that on top 
of using rollout can also heal itself with Moo Moo Milk. So you've right. got this huge damage sponge that can gear up for one-shot attacks with the rollout, come out of that, and then heal itself. I was not prepared for Whitney the first time, especially since Whitney is like the second or third gym leader. You're not expecting something like that, much less from a normal trainer, much less you know in the first half of the game. I was not prepared for Whitney, and she wiped me out pretty handily. That was by far the worst defeat I've ever suffered in the single-player campaign of any Pokemon game. And oh, it, it made her an extremely memorable trainer for me. My number five is Whitney. <laughs> I respect that. That Miltake is a beast, dude. And it's, like, so funny because, like, her gym has got all these, uh, you know, normal types were not really a huge threat in the traditional sense, you don't really view a normal type Pokemon as being a threat, but that mill tank, like you said, with that rollout is deadly, man. Absolutely <laughs> deadly. You go into her, you go into her gym, you go, what are you going to do? Throw eradicate at me? Lol. You're right. And then mill tank comes out. I was like, what is that? Oh, it's a cow. I'm sure this isn't dangerous. Just get murdered by this cow. Exactly. I'm going to kill your entire party and then sit over here and drink milk. <laughs> yeah, basically. Well, my number four is actually from Gen 5 and from Pokemon Black specifically. And I'll explain what I mean. But my number four is Drayden, the mm. dragon type gym leader from Opelucid City. And I say Pokemon Black specifically because Pokemon Black and White is actually a pretty interesting case. It's actually one of the... I would say in terms of, you know, there's always little differences between the different versions of Pokemon games. Of course, typically it's like, hey, there's, you know, different Pokemon that are exclusive to each version or whatever, or in some cases, even gym leaders, they're exclusive to each version. Opelucid City in Unova is actually substantially different depending on which game you're playing. And Drayden is only the gym leader of that city if you're playing Pokemon Black. If you're not, the gym leader is his apprentice, Iris, and the city is, is completely different, which I actually found really interesting. And that's because not only is Drayden the gym leader in Pokemon Black, he is also considered to be a like a region-renowned Dragon-type master. He's also the mayor of the city, and he's the president of the Oplucid Academy. So th this guy, who, by the way, is this like this old like curmudgeonly stoic character with this big white beard and like gentlemanly suspenders with a spiked shoulder pads. He's awesome. And he just may be the like ultimate overachieving just <laughs> specimen <laughs> in the entire series. He's, he's awesome. And, uh, and I just, I, I love him. I, I love dragon types. Also he, his team is fracture Dredgon and Haxorus. And he's, he's just this, like, tough, again, stoic kind of character. Apparently trains his dragon Pokemon by literally wrestling with them. Not the kind of guy you want to mess with. And again, I, I love his design. I love his character. I love that, you know, they, they have such big differences between those two versions of that gen. And, uh, yeah, he, he gives you the legend badge because he himself is a legend. <laughs> Well, for my number four, we are going with my Generation 8 representative. And just like we said, the, the Generation 8 roster of gym leaders was very 
very strong. Uh, if we so hadn't, good. if we hadn't gone one per generation on these lists, I could have very easily thrown three or even four conceivably on my top five just from generation. Oh, eight. Yeah. But I, I really thought about it, and I've got to say, I think the biggest standout from Generation 8 for me was Piers. Mm. From Spikemith City, a city that you can't even get into for quite a while. You actually have to kind of sneak your way into the town. Uh, and then the entire gimmick behind Generation 8 Pokemon Sword is this Gigantamax, is this Dynamax Kaiju mechanic essentially where one of your pokemon becomes absolutely massive that's the entire onus behind a lot of the battles within the games all the different gym leaders have their one main pokemon that you fight in dynamax form we talked about ness's dreadnought obviously but peers ever the rebel in spike myth they don't do that they think that you know they don't agree with the entire Dynamaxing thing. They think it goes against the principles of a standard Pokemon battle. So despite right. the fact that Dynamax is essentially the core mechanic of Pokemon Sword and Shield, Pierce says, no, bro, we don't do that here. They're like street fights. Basically, yeah. And even getting to fight Pierce, you basically have to coax him into it. Pierce would much rather just, because Pierce is the front man for his own band, he would much rather just play music the entire time. So it's interesting to have one of these gym leaders that that isn't just waiting to battle you, that isn't just waiting at the back of their gym to fight you, to have a gym leader basically say, I was like, no, I have no interest in that, man. No, you're fine. No, keep, go ahead. I don't care. But something that makes Pierce even more interesting is the fact that he has a very strong relationship with one of your rivals throughout the game, specifically Marnie. Pierce is the leader, quote unquote, of Team Yell who act right. as the de facto bad guys throughout the course of the game, even though they're not really bad. They're more or less just, they're more or less just belligerent. They're, effect- they're just screaming fanboys. Yeah, they're yeah. effectively soccer hooligans in Pokemon Sword and Shield. And Piers is, again, quote-unquote, their leader. But all of these things that make Piers unique, if all of those weren't enough, the... Piers is made so much better by the post-game content in Pokemon Sword and Shield. Piers gets so much more interesting in the post-game quest in Pokemon Sword and Shield. And based on everything and based on all of that extra character growth that we get from Piers after the credits have already rolled, ultimately for Generation 8, he was my biggest standout. Piers is my number four. He's great. I love his design too. I love his kind of like long, spiky tentacle hair. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, Piers is basically just, a human version of uh, uh, Obstagoon. Yeah, yeah, basically just kind of like black and white and pink motif. He's got these spiky like kiss boots, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, he's he's great. Like, like you said, there's so many great Gen Eight trainers. We we could have easily made it its own list, and um, yeah, I I do not blame you. Probably in terms of the relation to the other characters in the game, certainly Piers is a standout. I love him so much. He's so great. And again, just gets better after the credits roll. Yeah. My number three is actually similar to something you were talking about with Piers, the sort of not interested in fighting, at least initially, because my number three is Volkner from Gen 4, uh, Diamond and Pearl. 
the electric type gym leader of Sunny Shore City in Sinnoh, who gives you the beacon badge. This is kind of an example of a gym leader that, again, like Piers, I just like as a character because Volkner is a, a, he's a genius inventor who basically invented like most of the technology in Sunny Shore City, the tower that's there, even the electrical gear work that is inside of his gym itself, even though the power load of everything causes like rolling blackouts in the city during the events of the game. Um, But I really like his character arc because he's sort of dejected and depressed almost. And he's basically more or less lost interest in battling after his best friend leaves and joins the elite four. And in the anime, he actually went so far as to make a dispensary that literally handed out the beacon badge to anybody who wanted it. That's how just bored and distance he was and how little he cared to actually battle. And it isn't until you, the player, battles him that, like no pun intended, the, the spark is reignited for him and his sort of energy and fighting spirit returns to him. And, and I just, I love that kind of character arc. He's got his trademark Raichu. He's got an Ambipom, an Octillery, and a Luxray, which I think is a really interesting team composition. You wouldn't really think to have, for an electric type gym leader, you know, so many gym leaders just stick to the same rigid, you know, type of Pokemon. He actually gets a lot of mileage out of, you know, something like an Octillery to be in his lineup, I think is really interesting. And, and I just, I love him as a character. I love his design. And um, again, just just a really cool little arc for Volkner. Nice. Well, getting into my top three, we are going with my Gen 5 representative. We are going with my Unova representative. My number three is Lenora from Nacreen City. Mm-hmm. And I definitely wanted to put Lenora on the list, not just because she is the very first black uh, gym leader that you ever meet throughout the course of the series. I think uh, I think she might even be one of the first non-Japanese descent characters you ever meet in the Pokemon franchise. That may be, yeah. That's really interesting, actually. I didn't realize that. But uh, not just for that. Lenora is great. She is also a normal-type trainer like Whitney, but she isn't going to literally roll over your party (laughs) like Whitney. She gives you the basic badge when you defeat her, but she also lives uh, near this fossil museum. And, of course, fossils for any Pokemon Uh, For any fan of the Pokemon franchise, you know how big fossils and prehistoric Pokemon are to the franchise. Most generations have added prehistoric or fossilized Pokemon to the canon. Uh, You know, it obviously started off with Kabuto and Ammonite and and Aerodactyl. And now we've got basically an entire Jurassic Park full of prehistoric Pokemon at this point. And in Gen 5, Lenora, her husband, runs that museum. And... She is also super into this whole paleontology thing, which is one of the reasons that I connected with her so much is because for so much of my childhood, so much of my childhood, I wanted to be a paleontologist. Yeah, dude. And that's one of the reasons that I connected with Lenora so much. And uh, at the end of the game, she also gives you the light stone or the dark stone, depending on which version of the game you get. Spoilers, I, you know, I guess the version I got is pretty obvious now. But (laughs) she gives you the stone that allows you to unlock Zerkrom. And even in Black 2 and White 2, she still has 
uh, a really significant role. She is no longer the gym leader in Black 2 and White 2. She's actually taken over the museum at this point. She is now its full caretaker, full chairman at this point. So it's always, again, I'm really, really glad to see that they started to to really flesh out these character arcs for these gym leaders that after the first couple of generations, they were no longer just essentially sprites in a game waiting for you to come and battle them. They started to have their own lives and have their own character arcs. And I think Lenore is one of the best examples of that in addition to her historic appearance in the game. It was kind of controversial and interesting when like black and white had sequels. <laughs> so that, that was actually kind of cool. And yeah, it's, it's cool to see an actual character arc carry forward into a legitimate sequel. And I mean, Pokemon hasn't really done that since. I, I wouldn't mind seeing them return to that, actually. I, I kind of dug it. But for my number two, I am going with, again, my favorite generation. As you said, Pokemon Crystal represent um, Gen 2. I'm going with Morty. Morty, nice. Yes, the gym leader of Ecruteague City in Johto. Uh, Ghost-type gym leader. Surprise, surprise. If, if folks have been listening to this show for a long time, you know I love my ghost Pokemon. Um, <laughs> gives you the fog badge. And if you know his team makeup, and if you know who my favorite Pokemon is, you will not be shocked at all that Morty is high on my list. That that whole line, that, that Ghastly Haunter Gengar line specifically, Gengar is my favorite Pokemon of all time. Um, so no surprises here, but also Eucratique city is also kind of one of my favorite locations in the game. It's got this really cool vibe to it. And of course it's very steeped in the lore of the legendary Pokemon. And so is Morty himself. Um, he is referred to as the mystic seer of the future. Um, he's got a strong relationship with both his ghost type Pokemon and he is dedicated to studying the legendary Pokemon in hopes of one day seeing Ho-Oh. And uh, I also just, I love his design. He like, particularly in heart gold and soul silver, where they give him that cool scarf. I just, mm. I really, I love the, the way that looks. And um, the layout of his gym is awesome. It's like this dark, dimly lit, like pit almost with just limited visibility. And the flooring that you're having to traverse on is just hovering above it. It's, it's a really cool effect. I, I like it a lot. And again, to, to drive this home, his team is Ghastly, Hunter twice, <laughs> and then Gengar, of course. And um, I, I just, I, I love him. He just, if I were to be a gym leader in the Pokemon universe, this is probably the type of gym leader I would be. Yeah, after the first generation had, you know, those types. We knew that Generation 2, they were going to try to basically get all the types they hadn't gotten in Generation right. 1. So we knew that there was going to be a dragon uh, trainer. We knew there was going to be a flying gym leader. We knew there was going to be a ghost gym leader. And I think a lot of people, just because of the mystique of the ghost type Pokemon, were really excited to see what that ghost gym leader was going to look like. And I, I don't think Morty let him down. No. Yeah, I've just always been drawn to the ghost type Pokemon. I think they've always been some of the strongest designs. And yeah, I think Morty is just a really good representation of that. I like his place kind of in the story of that game. And um, yeah, I just, he's got a lot of personality to him. I, I, I just, I love Morty. For my number two, we are going with my Alola representative. Now, for those who have played ah. Pokemon Sun and Moon, you'll remember that the traditional gym leader trope the traditional gym leader format 
was kind of altered quite a bit for Sun and Moon, as opposed to having eight gym leaders that the player character would travel throughout this region defeating in an effort to eventually battle the Elite Four. Instead, you have four major islands representing the four islands essentially of Hawaii. That's what the Alola region was based off of. And each of these islands had its own island kahuna, its own essential island, essentially the big kahuna of the island. Yeah. And uh, again, as opposed to battling multiple gym leaders on each island, you did go through multiple challenges that were kind of structured like gym challenges. But at the end, once you've completed all the challenges on the island, then you would face that island's kahuna. And none of the kahunas was nearly as memorable as the very first one, the Melee Melee Island Kahuna Hala. But in Pokemon Sun and Moon, you would progress through these island challenges, usually culminating instead of a gym leader in a battle against what they called a totem Pokemon, which was essentially a powered up version of a normal Pokemon that could actually call in an ally into the fight. It was really, really cool. But at the end of all the island challenges, you would fight the island Kahuna and the Melee Melee Island Kahuna was Hala. Now, the reason Hala was such a the reason Hala was such a standout was not just because he was the grandfather of your rival in the game. Right. Yeah. Your main rival in the game was this young boy named Hal and Hala was his grandfather. But not only that. Uh, Hala is the character, not the professor in this game. Hala was the character who actually grants you your starter at the beginning of Sun and Moon. So already there, you're establishing a really deep relationship with this character so that by the time you defeat him, uh, by the time he is the first Kahuna, you beat your first real step on becoming uh, your first real step on becoming a master in this generation. You've already gotten to know Hala very well because you've had multiple interactions with him. You think of him as one of the main core cast of this generation. And another one of the cool things about the structure of Sun and Moon is the four island kahunas that you individually beat also are the characters, the gym leaders, the trainers who comprise the elite four at the end of the game. So... It's this thing where you beat them, but you're still not done with them. There's there's that progressive right. difficulty. And I that's another thing I really, really liked about it. It's another thing I really like the structure of Generation 8. I really like how they did essentially the, the Elite Four structure of that. And I really like how they did the Elite Four structure of this. I think this one is actually done a little bit better than Generation 8 because... You already know these trainers. You understand how strong and how difficult they are. And now having to fight all of them with powered up Pokemon in a gauntlet. The Elite Four is probably the best. The Generation 7 Elite Four is probably the best built in terms of anticipation, in terms of you know what you're getting yourself into. Right. In most of the other generations, it's basically just four random trainers who are all good trainers in their own right in many cases, but you have relationships with the Elite Four and Pokemon Sun. So all of these interactions you have with Hala throughout the course of the game, you start the game, he gives you your starter, and then you wind up fighting him, not just as the Kahuna of Melee Melee Island, but as a member of the Elite Four. And even with your interactions with him post-game, I won't really spoil some of the things that happen with Hala post-game, but you have 
arguably a deeper relationship with Hala, with that kahuna in the game, than you have with maybe any other character aside from your rival in Pokemon Sun and Moon. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, again, I just, I love that structure that they introduced with that game. And in, in a lot of ways, I think Gen 7 was one of the more experimental generations of Pokemon. And, and it, a lot of it really, really worked for me. And I mean, Sun and Moon is a, is a top tier Pokemon game. Yeah, just, just taking out the HMs for me was, thank you. Oh, yeah. Thank you for yeah. doing that. Game changer. I just, I love the structure of the Kahunas. Like you said, that you've got that built-in relationship with them by the time you face them again in the Elite Four. It's almost like, it would. it's like Dumbledore being the final boss or something like that <laughs> in a Harry like Potter that. game. Yeah, if Dumbledore <laughs> was this cool surfing old guy with a tan that would probably just go out and grab a coconut with you after the battle was over. (laughs) Yeah. By the way, shout out to the Pokemon series for having so many older characters in the gym leader roles. I really like that. The Pokemon series has always had some really great older characters. Of course, I shouted out Drayden earlier as my number four, but yeah, like all kinds of older characters characters you know, yeah i really i really love that yeah opal from gen 8 is also fantastic oh yes but my number one getting into it I, I think a lot of people were probably wondering when one of us was going to bring this character up from generation one my number one is sabrina i mean it just had to happen it, it was tough to choose between like many of the as we've already said iconic gym leaders from that first generation. There's so much nostalgia tied to that first set of games. There's so much of me. I mean, that that game changed our lives. You know, it really did. And you have so much love in that generation for sure. But Sabrina, uh, leader of the Saffron City gym in Kanto, psychic type, gives you the marsh badge. Um, she There really couldn't be anybody else at my number one spot. That's only because you have to collect a ganger to beat her. <laughs> well, so that's actually, you joke, but that is in my notes as part of why I love her so much. Oh, there's not a doubt <laughs> in my mind. <laughs> she's, But really, she is kind of a legendary character. What I like about her is that she's legendary to both Pokemon fans and she's legendary within the world itself because as people that have been playing these games for a long time will know, she isn't just a Psychic-type gym leader. She literally possesses Psychic abilities herself. Yeah, she's creepy. She is creepy, but I love that about her. She's like the subject of one of my very favorite episode arcs in the old anime series. Um and exactly, as, as you mentioned, it's because of those episodes that my boy Haunter was introduced. So, you know, <laughs> shout out to that. <laughs> but admittedly, the teleportation mechanic, like in her gym, is, is annoying. There's no, you know, no bones about it. But I, I just, I love Sabrina so much. Again, uh, she, if, you know, for a lot of people, I think she represents just the the cool unique gym leader from gen 1 in a cast of amazing gym leaders and um th- there's so many I, I literally could have chosen any one of them as my number 1 but Sabrina has always stand uh, stood out from the rest to me her team is Kadabra Mr Mime Venomoth and Alakazam I just I love that whole vibe I, I love the spoon bending and again the creepy episode in the anime it's one of the very best episodes of the anime Nobody else could have been my number one, really, when I thought about it. 
Sabrina is an incredibly standout trainer for a lot of us because a lot of gamers of a certain age playing red and blue back in the day remember just how completely unbalanced psychic types were. Psychic types were essentially the catch-all. They were the solution to essentially everything because even though they... (laughs) <laughs> even though even the anime tried to posit it as I was like, oh, well, all you need is a ghost type. Ghost types are fantastic against psychic types. Yes, ghost type attacks are great against psychic types. The problem is the only three ghost types in generation one were also dual right. ghost poison types. Poison also being weak to psychic. So these Pokemon that they try to tell you would be great against Sabrina's Pokemon were also weak against her attacks. That was how overpowered psychic types were in Generation 1. So when you found out you had to battle a really powerful gym leader using nothing but psychic powers, that was one of the gym leaders. You're like, you know what? Let me wait until I'm about 30 levels higher. (laughs) Yeah, I I just, I love the vibe. I, I love the... Again, just the whole setup and the and the heritage with the anime and stuff like that. Just Sabrina is such a cool character. I mean, I, I literally could have picked any <laughs> any. I could have made a case for any Gen One gym leader to be my number one, but Sabrina was was the one that I just had to go with. Well, surprising no one, my number one is also from Gen One. Of course. Just like you, I really racked my brain trying to figure out who deserved to have the Gen 1 spot on my list. Because like we've mentioned several times before, there are so many good choices from Generation 1. Of course, many being helped by the anime. Of course, Brock and Misty were main characters in the anime for years. Of course, you have Sabrina who stood out for all the reasons we've just Uh, for all the reasons we've just gone over. And I very, very nearly, almost, very nearly, just just about, put Giovanni as my number one pick because of the really interesting character arc that Giovanni has. Probably the first true interesting character arc for a gym leader within the Pokemon games themselves. However, after everything, I had to go with Brock. Brock is my number one. Yes, of course, the anime made, you know, really expanded on Brock's character. A lot of what we see in the anime is nowhere in the games necessarily, but there are a couple things about Brock that really do stand out. The first of which is he's the very first gym leader that millions of trainers have ever fought. He was essentially the first real step in many millions of our Pokemon journeys, that first real step in our journey. And depending on the Pokemon you chose, he could have also been an incredibly difficult step. If you chose Charmander at the beginning, you may have had a very difficult time with Brock. If you chose Bulbasaur or Squirtle, Brock might have seemed like a little bit of a pushover, but if you chose Charmander, you may have had a very different experience with the early game of Pokemon. And then... It comes to Pokemon Yellow. You don't get a choice between Charmander, Bulbasaur, Squirtle, and Pokemon Yellow. You are given Pikachu, a character whose attacks are completely ineffectual against the very first gym leader. So if you're playing Pokemon Yellow, Brock was essentially an almost literal brick wall for you. Really, the only thing you could do is 
train yourself up a Caterpie into a Butterfree and use Confusion. That was about the only available attack you had at that point in the game that could do anything against Brock because Pikachu, despite beating Brock in the show, in the game was completely useless. So uh, that's one of the things is the the incredibly differing experiences that people had with Brock. If you chose Bulbasaur or Squirtle, Brock was an absolute pushover. If you chose Charmander, Brock was really difficult. If you were playing Pokemon Yellow, Brock was essentially the end-all, be-all god of Pokemon. And again, he's just iconic. He really is. He came back for Generation 2, one of the greatest post-game content surprises of all time. Came back for Generation 2. Obviously, he's made appearances in other media. He's this legendary character throughout the series. And just for his just for his sheer iconic quality, I ultimately had to choose him as my number one Pokemon gym leader of all time. It is kind of funny. I mean, Brock is iconic, and, and a lot of those gym leaders are. But it is kind of funny when you see his character and, and the way, like you just said, how intimidating he can be in the game versus how sort of lovable and goofy <laughs> as he is in the anime. I mean, he's definitely intimidating when Ash first, uh, first encounters him in the anime. Uh, but you kind of see the soft underbelly of, of Brock really quickly. And I love that. I love his onyx, you know, just mm-hmm. such a, what a cool shot, you know, of, of Brock and, and his onyx just looming over you. I mean, great, great character. And that's another good point is a lot of the Pokemon that you have seen up to that point in the game. If you didn't have this was before the internet, if you hadn't seen a guide, if you didn't know what was coming, which I certainly didn't. All the Pokemon you'd really seen up to that point in the game looked fairly docile. You had your Bulbasaur right. and Squirtle, and they were cute. And you had these worms, and you had Pikachu, who was this little mouse, and Rattata and Pidgey, who was this little rat and this little bird. They were all kind of cute up to that point. And then Brock throws out this 30-foot rock serpent, this draconic-looking yeah. monstrosity out of nowhere. And you're like, what is that? It's like, hey, uh, I know you're just like fooling around with some rats and stuff, but meet my rock dragon made of boulders. <laughs> and I know Onyx isn't a dragon type. It's a rock ground, but that's the feeling right. that it gave off the first time you saw this massive Pokemon. That was the first real quote unquote cool Pokemon that you saw. So when it comes out of nowhere, after seeing all these cute Pokemon for the first couple hours of the game, when Onyx comes out of nowhere, that's a pretty jarring experience. Yeah, just a great character. I mean, again, we we could sit here and make a whole list just from Gen 1, but I mean, yeah, these characters are great and they mean so much to us. You know, it's really, we can't describe, I think, to people who are just kind of getting into Pokemon what it was like. Back in the 90s, like when these things first came out, we were just right at the height, just right. I say it all the time on the show, how sniped we were just right at the height of the Pokemon craze in our like adolescence, you know, young boys, like just it was just right there. Perfect. And yeah, I mean, these these characters are just burned into our minds, you know. Absolutely. Just one of the incredible experiences, one of the incredible memories we have beating those gym leaders on our way to fighting the Elite Four and becoming the Pokemon champion. But there are so many great gym leaders out there. We're sure we'd missed your favorite. Let us know how wrong we were. Let us know what are truly the best gym leaders of all time. Reach out to us on Facebook and Twitter and tell us your opinions. But we are still rolling along with our 25th anniversary Pokemon celebration here at All In. And we're certainly not the only ones celebrating. 
the Pokemon company themselves has been celebrating quite a bit. Matter of fact, just yesterday, they dropped their 25th anniversary Pokemon Presents on us to much fanfare. And yeah, I'm really ex- I was really excited about this, Seth. Yeah, a lot of people were. I mean, they had half a million people just on YouTube alone watching this thing. And of course, it did cause the stream to lag quite a bit. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, the premiere was kind of weird, too, because they premiered it like a few minutes late and it caught, you know, the video like was ended early for a lot of people. So there were a few little technical hiccups. But I mean, yeah, there was just an absolute fervor going into this presents. But there is certainly a lot to talk about, a lot to dissect from yesterday's Pokemon Presents, and a lot to talk about between ourselves in terms of our history with the iconic franchise. So, let's do it. So, starting with the Pokemon Presents, this was about a 20-minute video that kind of covered a lot of interesting things. Some things we expected, some things we certainly did not expect. No. But to, to kind of go you know, piece by piece here, I've got to say, they introduced this Pokemon Presents with one of the most nostalgic things I think I've ever seen in my life. It, <laughs> this, like, video that just encompassed the entirety of 25 years of Pokemon and it was just such a nostalgia bomb for me. Like I, I was sitting there just like absorbing it all with a huge grin on my face. There was so, so much. They went through just about every product that the Pokemon company has ever released. Just, there was just this rapid fire of product after product after product talking about the manga, the games, the anime, the products, just everything that the Pokemon franchise, the Pokemon intellectual property has given us over the past 25 years. And the, the way it was, the way it was narrated and the way all these hashtags kept dropping at the bottom of the screen. It was almost as if the Pokemon company had just last week discovered what hashtags were. And they're like, Oh, we're going to have a (laughs) billion of them in our presentation. But yeah, ultimately it was, it was a really cool present, especially for us who have been there since the beginning, who have been there for all 25 years of Pokemon's amazing historic run to see all of that condensed into this five minute, basically nostalgia bomb was oh man it was so not i went back and watched it several times and it made me smile each and every time i'll tell you what it reminded me of it actually reminded me of the sonic mania announced trailer the way it just really tapped in to the nostalgia of its target audience that i was getting a really big sonic uh, sonic mania nostalgia vibes yeah and i i honestly i think that's why this anniversary hits different for me is to touch on something you said to have been there and cognizant and present for all of these 25 years of Pokemon to have been with this series since its inception. And for it to have been so important to me throughout that course of my life, even still to this day, I think is why this one just hits a little bit differently than all of the other myriad anniversaries that we've had. And it's, it's really, really impressive to see just the scope of what they've been able to achieve. Like, Everything from, you know, Pokemon Snap to Hey You Pikachu and like all these, the e-reader and all these weird like peripherals they've made over the years and the merchandise. I just, I loved that opening video. It set a really nice tone for the proceedings. And the fact they even, they even busted out the e-reader for that video. That was (laughs) so great. 
That was so great, man. But it wasn't long before they, you know, went ahead and got into it. And I think the the first kind of thing that we got was something we sort of expected, which was a more detailed video as we're nearing the launch of Pokemon Snap, of new Pokemon Snap on April 30th. Uh, we were sort of expecting to see some kind of more detailed video trailer for it. And that is exactly what we got. And my goodness, new Pokemon Snap continues to just look incredible. I... I don't think Pokemon has ever looked this good. Legitimately, I think it's one of the best looking games on the Nintendo Switch. If not, again, legitimately the best looking game on the Nintendo Switch. It blows my mind that Nintendo's hybrid console is capable of visuals like that. It looks like a PS5 game. It really does. Uh, I don't know how they were rendering the footage. I don't know what technology they were using, but... The game, from a visual aspect, is just absolutely stunning. It really is. I completely agree with you. Pokemon has never looked this good. I think Sword and Shield look really good, but honestly, man, new Pokemon Snap is just on another level when it comes to just visual crispness. It really, a lot of, especially with the past couple generations, this phrase has kind of been thrown around a lot. You know, it looks like a playable cartoon or it looks like a cartoon in video game form. But sure. Yeah. But man, I mean, and and I love all the stuff. We got a little more detail on, you know, we knew about the whole Illumina thing. We, we knew about that from the last trailer and everything and some of the details we had heard. But some really interesting new gameplay mechanics like it looks like there's actually kind of like a melody you can play almost like the poke flute which looks like it's kind of making a return. And then, yeah, straight up Illumina orbs that you can throw at any Pokemon to make them glow, which is not what I was expecting. Yeah, when we first saw that Meganium from the original release trailer, and it it was very clearly glowing with some type of mythical aura, we didn't really know what was going on. It turns out it's this Illumina phenomena. And you get these orbs, you get these items that allow you to essentially give that aura, that phenomena to the Pokemon that you throw them at. They specifically showed off a score bunny. Uh, yeah. They specifically showed off a score bunny in the trailer. They threw one of these Illumina orbs at it. And not only did it start to glow, but the flames that it emitted became blue. It went from red flames to blue flames. So uh, I don't know how deep the mechanic is going to go, but at the very least, it looks like it will be able to affect certain aspects of certain Pokemon and it should make for some really good pictures. Yeah. And, and, you know, pictures of course are at the heart of this experience. The sort of photo grading and stuff comes back, albeit much, much deeper. But one of the things that I thought was really cool that they showed off is that now in this game, you've got a full suite of photo editing options, everything from filters to frames to stickers and i mean it's it's really cool i can't wait to see what people are able to do with this uh very similar photo modes that we're seeing in a lot of AAA games <laughs> they even showed off a photo mode for final fantasy 7 this past week at uh, yeah at the playstation state of play obviously mario 3d world has its own photo mode obviously mario odyssey has its own photo mode this become an extraordinarily popular mode to put into a lot of triple a games but honestly if you're gonna put it into any game it needed to go into new pokemon snap if any game deserved to have a mode like that it's new pokemon snap 
Yeah, and you know, not only can you, everybody's kind of a photographer in the modern age, of course, with the the rise of Instagram, but not only can you take these pictures and share them like you normally would, as speculated previously, it looks like new Pokemon Snap is going to have some sort of online community where you can upload your pictures, rate pictures. It sounds like some photos will even be like featured by the Pokemon company and by the community for, you you know, you can earn likes and medals and stuff. So it sounds like that online functionality is going to be fairly robust for people to share their photos with the community. When it comes to a game like this, new Pokemon Snap, the photo mode is basically the heart of the gameplay. I just mentioned the photo mode, but that's an addendum really to most of these games that I was talking about. For new Pokemon Snap, the photos really are the core experience of the game. So it makes sense that they're going to try to make the most out of everything that they can from this little aspect. And you know what? I, I... I still really feel like there's a few things, a few big things that we haven't seen from the game yet. We have, we did get to see some of the environments. They were teased a little bit in previous trailers, but I think we got a much better look at some of the environments in this game. And again, they're also completely stunning, just visual marvels. We've got the the nighttime uh, park was really, really pretty specifically. Yeah. I also really like the underwater. There was a Chincho and an Inke kind of interacting somehow, but just all of these little microcosm interactions with all of these Pokemon all over the place. Uh, it's This game is going to be near infinitely replayable. It, it really seems that way. And I, I mean, I can't wait. We don't have much longer to wait, of course. Just barely two months out. Another quick thing I wanted to shout out because they are, you know, very, very clearly leaning a lot more heavily into the story of this one than in the first one. And a lot of people were speculating that the new professor, Professor Mirror, was Todd. And I, I actually noticed at the near the very end of the trailer, I think we see Todd there standing next to him. And then it's you and your two like companions. Uh, there's like two new companion characters that I guess are joining you. And I'm pretty sure we see Todd there at the end. I mean, it looks just like him. Yeah, I didn't catch that at first. And then you sent me that screenshot, that screen capture you took. <laughs> just says like, yeah, yeah, fair enough. That's that's Todd. That's like 99%. That's Todd. Yeah. So it seems like there is going to be a little bit of a connective tissue with the first game, which I think is going to be really cool for a lot of people. So, yeah, I mean, bring it on. I, I am so ready for this game. Yeah, we'll see how Celebi fits in as well. They're teased at the end of the trailer. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, Pokemon is doing a lot, of course, for the 25th anniversary. They did take a second during this Presents to run down a lot of the events they've got going on for all of the different Pokemon like service games, like Pokemon Masters, Pokemon Go, stuff like that. Also worth noting, tonight, um, they are actually doing the concert with Post Malone. So that is definitely something to tune into um, later on tonight if you want to, you know, fully bask in the Pokemon love and, and see what's going on with that. Maybe he'll bring some more Hootie and the Blowfish covers. <laughs> That's what uh, I was about to say. I was like, yeah, yeah, we'll get to hear that Hootie and the Blowfish cover live with all of its critique background music and all of its glory. <laughs> that was actually pretty cool. I'm not going to lie. That was. But uh, I think a, another big thing, though, that people were really looking for in this Presents is all of the rumblings, right, of a remake of Diamond and Pearl. There's been so much talk about this for what feels like the past several years. And sure enough, 
we finally got confirmation that Brilliant Diamond and Shining Pearl are real and they're coming late 2021. Obviously, Diamond and Pearl were next on the docket for the remakes. Back in the Game Boy Advance era, we got Fire Red and Leaf Green. On the Nintendo DS, we got Heart Gold and Soul Silver. And then on the 3DS, we got Omega Ruby and Alpha Sapphire. So we knew that the Gen 4 remakes were coming at some point. Ever since Omega Ruby and Alpha Sapphire came out, people have been wondering, okay, when is Sinnoh? Well, yesterday we got that answer. Like you said, Brilliant Diamond, Shining Pearl coming to the Nintendo Switch this year. And honestly, I was kind of expecting them to do it in the Sword and Shield engine. But these remakes are going to be very faithful to the original top-down perspective of the old game. I've seen a few people compare the Sinnoh remakes to Legend of Zelda Link's Awakening in terms of the visual style. Mm. And I can, I can kind of see that. But yes, these are going to be old-style, top-down Pokemon games on the Nintendo Switch, which, again, it's a remaster. They're not completely remaking the game from the from the ground up from a gameplay perspective. So this kind of makes sense, especially when you take into account how are they, you know, how do you map environments like that? How do you completely remap stuff like that in an engine like for, for Sword and Shield? Ultimately, I do understand why they went with the top-down perspective for the remakes. And after thinking about it, I'll, begrudgingly, I think I'm going to wind up preferring this. I, I do think I would prefer this over the Sword and Shield engine. But I don't know. I, I do think it would have been cool to see what it, what it would have looked like. Yeah, I, I don't necessarily think I would have wanted it to be in the Sword and Shield engine. I think that... You know, looking at what they did with uh, Omega Ruby and Alpha Sapphire, I think is kind of the preferable, of course, that was ostensibly in the Sun and Moon engine back on the 3DS. But I really thought that that was a kind of natural progression of what those older games looked like. When you talk about X and Y and Sun and Moon, I really think that that was kind of like that old style, but kind of zhuzhed up a little bit with, with you know more detailed graphics. This really feels like if you were to visualize what you see in the pixel art, like in the original games, if you were to visualize those one-to-one with 3D renders, that's basically what it looks like. It's almost chibi, short, squat, you know, top-down 2D. I don't hate the style. Admittedly, it's not the direction I would have gone with. But, um, you know, when you go into battles, it looks like that you you still have the kind of more traditional you know, the trainers look like full human characters. All this kind of chibi style is in the overworld, as it were. So, I mean, I'm looking forward to it. These games are cool. This is probably the generation that I am the least familiar with. It's like the kind of thing where I played Diamond and Pearl, you know, I I played those games and enjoyed them, but it's not something that I, you know, revisited, spent hundreds and hundreds of hours with. So I'm going to pick this up and I'm looking forward to it. I wasn't like in love with this new style, but it is kind of interesting. I think that they've got a new team working on it. It's actually not Game Freak. Uh, Game Freak is working on something else that we'll talk about in a second. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's going to be developed by Ilka, which is the studio that they gave Pokemon Home to. Um, worth noting, though, that Junichi Masuda is still directing the game. He was the director of the original games, and he is still returning to the director's seat for this one. So. It's not, uh, it's in good hands still. 
I think, is the takeaway. I'm still really excited. I never actually got to finish Sinnoh. I got into it around Platinum. It is worth mentioning that Diamond and Pearl was the last generation to have that third entry in the generation. After Sinnoh, which had Diamond and Pearl and then Platinum, after that, we stopped getting kind of that third special edition entry in the generation. Black and White wind up getting Black and White 2. X and Y never got Z. Sun and Moon never got Stars. And then Sword and Shield never got Armor or Crown. They got expansions for Armor and Crown, but they never got a full third entry. Diamond and Pearl was the last generation to get that kind of special third entry in the generation. I assume that Brilliant Diamond and Shining Pearl are going to have a lot of those bells and whistles, probably going to have all those bells and whistles that Platinum had. But one of the things I'm going to be most excited and most interested to see with these remakes is what other quality of life things from the four extra generations we've had since Sinnoh what quality of life things they're going to retroactively incorporate into the remakes because they have done a few things with the remakes. They have added those quality, those newer quality of life things back in to make the gameplay experience a lot smoother and a lot better. So it'll be interesting to see where that, you know, where they start to blend together with the newer games. Yeah. I mean, you, you look at let's go where they basically, you know, remove that classic HM stuff, like all, all, you know, there's still, it's very much still a, let's go Pikachu and Eevee was still very much a remake of that generation of those games, but they, they definitely included some of the more modern enhancements that, that we've been used to now for a little while. So I do expect that they're going to do the same thing here with Brilliant Diamond and Shining Pearl. Uh, we'll see. I'm sure we'll hear more about it as it gets closer. I'm looking forward to it. It's late this year. We don't have a hard date. We just know it's late this year. And, uh, you know, it is the 15th anniversary of those games this year. So I'm, I'm sure they're going to hit that. And, um, yeah, I mean, I'm looking forward to it. Um, it's definitely going to be something to look at, something to play. It's uh, not the only Pokemon game we got, though, in terms no. of new announcements. Who called this? I honestly... <laughs> It legitimately, on paper, sounds too good to be true. So what we're talking about is the final game that got announced during yesterday's Pokemon Presents, during the 25th anniversary celebration from the Pokemon Company. We got word of a brand new action RPG set in feudal Sinnoh. That's right. In addition to the Sinnoh remakes, we are getting a brand new game set in the feudal era Sinnoh region called Pokemon Legends Arceus. Yeah, that was weird, by the way. Arceus? I always said Arceus, but then they're pronouncing it Arceus, so I guess that's canonical. (laughs) So what Pokemon Legends Arceus, Arceus, that's going to become a thing now, isn't it? But what this new action (laughs) RPG is, it looks like they are taking a lot of cues from the open world aspect that we saw in Crown Tundra and the Isle of Armor that you and I were both very much hoping was going to comprise the future of the franchise. And by all accounts, it certainly looks mm-hmm. like that's that's what's going on. But it, it almost looked at the beginning of the trailer like this was going to be Gen 9 from the way everything was looking, from the way that the character was traversing the environment, from the towns, from the Pokemon that you saw in the overworld. And then we started seeing the interactions the character had with the Pokemon, we saw them from the world map throw Pokeballs at multiple Pokemon. 
So you're going to be able to capture Pokemon outside of these standard battle mechanics, which is going to be a first really for the Pokemon franchise. I mean, this basically looks like Pokemon by way of Breath of the Wild. I mean, it really does. This looks like a full open world kind of more, you know, again, it's in feudal Sinnoh. So it's very much wilderness and it kind of has this more hard edge to it. It's got this, you know, feudal Japanese style. We see these like shots of these ancient looking Pokeball, almost prototypes. (laughs) And it sounds like the story is actually going to involve you creating the first Sinnoh region Pokedex. Mm -hmm. So I mean, it's very much a game that is taking place, you know, in the past. And yeah, I mean, seeing these characters, you know, move around in the world and stuff and seeing like crouching in the tall grass and like throwing a Pokeball at a wild Pokemon and like the even the battle screens, like even though there is kind of a more traditional battle setup, it's not anywhere near what we're used to with the normal games. I mean, I think this is going to be a game of many, many firsts for the series. It looks like an extraordinary leap, not just in terms of visuals, because of course, I mean, it looks beautiful, but just in terms of all of the new gameplay mechanics, like the stuff that we saw in Isle of Armor and Crown Tundra looks like it is just magnified to the nth degree here. You're absolutely right. The game does look very, very good. It looks like we are taking that next step in the Pokemon franchise. A few people have lamented the overly, what they perceive as overly simplified visuals in the Pokemon franchise, especially when compared to much more visually robust JRPGs. But Pokemon Legends does look like it is definitely taking a massive step in that direction of being more visually. And it's not going to I'm not really going to put it on the the same scale as Pokemon or new Pokemon Snap, but uh, I would say that in terms of being visually striking, Pokemon Legends looks like it's right in between Pokemon Sword and Shield and new Pokemon Snap. It is a very pretty looking game. And in terms of the gameplay, uh, I was concerned a little bit that it was just going to be some rudimentary spinoff once they started showing off a couple of the mechanics, but then they did show an actual battle screen with the traditional Pokemon four move setup. So this is going to be a full on action RPG with Pokemon. And one of the things that a lot of people have lamented in addition to what they perceive as relatively, you know, basic visuals is the basic animations that a lot of the Pokemon have for their attacks in the game. If you've ever worried about attack animations in a Pokemon game, you really need to check out the trailer for Pokemon Legends because these attack animations are gorgeous. Yeah, you can tell they're very much like doubling down on that, especially after all the flack they caught with uh, Pokemon Sword and Shield in that regard. You can tell that they're making sure that that is not going to be a concern with this. So really, really cool. And I, I really think that this is the Pokemon game that a lot of people have seen in their heads for 25 years now. This is what people have really wanted for a long time. It is not a proper Gen 9, as we have already said. It doesn't even have its own set of starters. They're doing a really interesting thing with this one where the mysterious, they didn't name the professor, but the mysterious professor of this new feudal Sinnoh setting um, has apparently brought over from various different regions, Cyndaquil, Rowlet, and Oshawott as your starters for Pokemon Legends. So I I actually thought that was a really interesting take. 
Yeah, they're not introducing any new Pokemon, at least not for the starters. And even though the fact that it's set in the Sinnoh region, you are going to have your choice between a Johto starter, between a Kalos starter, and an Alolan starter, which is really, really interesting. Uh, you still have your typical grass, fire, water setup, so they're still kind of framing it more like a core Pokemon RPG, but this is definitely going to be a spinoff. And you and I were talking about this. This looks like a potential divergent point for the right. core Pokemon franchise. Pokemon Legends is is technically a spinoff, but the way they're presenting this game, it really looks as if this Pokemon Legends game and potential franchise is going to wind up being more targeted at, you know, more mature, more maybe even hardcore players. Gen 9, I'm sure, is still going to give a relatively basic core type of Pokemon experience for those fans of the Pokemon franchise that are looking for stuff like that. But it really looks like with this Legends game, they're really... It looks like they're really taking the shackles off and saying, okay, we have our core Pokemon gameplay, but how do we throw that into more modern action RPGs like, you know, the right. Assassin's Creed games, like Breath of the Wild, like bigger, more cinematic adventures. It looks like they're going to start to get really experimental with Pokemon Legends. Looks like they're going to try to take the Pokemon franchise into massive new cinematic uh, directions. Yeah, I hope this means that they're not going to, you know, continue to experiment and continue to grow in this kind of direction with Gen 9. I do think that, and I do hope that, uh, Gen 9 is going, when we get it eventually, is going to still kind of be a step towards this. But yeah, I do think that we've got, you know, the more casual take on Pokemon with the Let's Go games, which is another series I hope they continue. I was really hoping to see like a Let's Go Johto in this, but didn't end up happening. I still think that's going to happen eventually because Let's Go Pikachu and Eevee sold really, really well. But then we've got that for the more kind of casual, newer players experience. Then we've got the core, you know, generational experiences for people that have been playing these games for forever. And then for the hardcore audience that is looking for something that is a little more in depth, a little more mechanically dense, um, we've got the Legend series. So, I mean, it really does feel like they're appealing to every facet of the Pokemon audience here. I, I'm just so, so excited. I really am. Here in this 25th anniversary Pokemon Presents, we got new Pokemon Snap. We got a sequel that fans have been clamoring for for 20 years now. We are excited because we finally got the announcement of the Sinnoh remakes that fans have been clamoring for for several years now. And we have an announcement of a stunning new cinematic looking action RPG that looks to be taking Pokemon really into the next generation of gaming. Uh, I mean, across the entire spectrum of what was shown off, we didn't get 30 games like we did at last week's Nintendo Direct, but the stuff we right. got here in this Pokemon Presents makes me really excited about the future of the franchise. It looks like they have made a lot of very good decisions in the past couple of years. Yeah, and, and I mean, that's exactly what they set out to do here. And again, this is just part of the Pokemon celebration. There's more to come. Uh, you know, we got the concert and stuff tonight. They've been ramping up leading up to this. And yeah, um, another quick thing we should mention, Pokemon legends is releasing worldwide in early 2022. So again, no hard date, but early 2022 is when we can be on the lookout for that. Hopefully on switch pro. That's all I'll say <laughs> about that. 
<laughs> we'll, we'll see. Uh, it could get pushed back. This was something I mentioned to you. But for those people who have seen Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, and I know it seems like an incredibly random thing to inject into this conversation, but the the stylized nature of Into the Spider-Verse has almost this intentional frame droppage built into the movie. And it looked almost like they were trying to do something like that with this game. And I didn't know whether that was intentional or whether it's, or whether or not it was just because this is just such an early build of the game. And if it is because the game is in such an early build stage, it would not surprise me at all if this game does wind up getting pushed back because this is very clearly going to be an ambitious title for the Pokemon company. Currently, yes, we are looking at an early 2022 release. So I hope we do get this game sooner rather than later because it looks awesome and I want to play it. But, you know, do take your time with this Pokemon company. This looks like it's going to be a very, very good title. A lot of people are going to be excited for it. Please just take your time. Do it right. Make it the game that we've all been waiting for 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 25 years. I mean, yeah. I mean, do it right. We're you know we are willing to wait for it. So I'm uh, I'm I'm really excited. You know, Pokemon Legends Arceus um, really I, was kind of the announcement that I think a lot of people were hoping for, and they absolutely delivered. But again, just kind of talking about 25 years of Pokemon, I, I think that to close out this episode we would be remiss not to just spend at least a few minutes talking about what this series has meant to us over the years. And again, this is a series that we have both been so intimately attached to for most of our lives at this point. And um, I mean, you mentioned all the time, you've got a Pokemon tattoo. Like this is the kind of stuff that, you know, just means a really, really great deal to us. So here on the 25th anniversary, I I felt like we should just kind of share our, share our top level thoughts and kind of share what the series has meant to us these 25 years. I have very vivid memories of opening up a Nintendo power magazine back in 1995 and seeing some photos in this column in Nintendo power called role players realm and seeing this game boy game called pocket monsters and I really enjoyed RPGs. I'd seen, you know, I played a lot of Final Fantasy Mystic Quest and a couple others up to that yeah. point. And here was this game where you could capture the monsters that you fought. It wasn't just you fighting monsters and trying to free a kingdom or trying to beat some dark wizard or something. These monsters that you could find, you could actually catch and have them fight for you. And that moment, just seeing that. In my youth, that immediately struck a chord with me. I don't remember the vast majority of the stuff that I saw and read in those Nintendo Power magazines, but that moment specifically, I still very vividly remember. I can still almost perfectly see the page from the Nintendo Power in my mind. Honestly, it stuck out to me that much. It's not just something to where the game came out and it was awesome, and then I retroactively remembered that I had seen it in role players realm. The Pokemon franchise struck a strong chord with me from the first second. I saw the screenshots. I knew it was going to be something special. Even in my young youthful ignorance, I knew when (laughs) I saw this game that this was going to be big, that this was going to be something that was going to 
be influential and be a massive, massive uh, success. And it was going to be everywhere. I knew it was going to be, I knew it was going to be the next big thing. The first time I saw the screenshots in Nintendo power, I even kind of vaguely have this image of seeing the image of Charmander in those screenshots in the magazine. And when my, we had some friends who lived down the street and they wound up getting a copy of Pokemon Blue when it finally came out here in the U.S. We didn't have a copy of it yet. And, you know, because there was still no Internet or anything around there at the time, despite the fact right. I got Nintendo Power magazines, I I didn't really have a way to stay up to the second with new releases and all the news as it was happening. So uh, we just found out that you know, they had gotten this copy of Pokemon Blue. And I said, oh, it's this game from the magazine. That's right. They said it was coming to the U.S. Oh, we've got to try it. So we borrowed it from them. I still had my Game Boy. And me and my two sisters absolutely wore that cartridge out. Unfortunately, just like many Pokemon games, you could only keep one save file. So for two weeks straight, legitimately, for two weeks straight, my two sisters and I just kept alternating the cartridge we just kept saving over each other's files and choosing our starter pokemon and going and beating brock and then we you know we'd finish after a couple hours and we'd (laughs) go do something else and then one of us would wind up picking the game boy up and then erasing that file and then doing it all over again legitimately i probably have played the first couple hours of pokemon red and blue i would say around 25 times wow that's awesome so, but eventually, we were borrowing the game. Eventually, he's like, uh, yeah, guys, can, can I have my game back now? So, <laughs> we had to give him his game back. But as quickly as I could, I saved up enough money. And I went to the mall. And I went to GameStop. And I bought Pokemon Red. And I put Lord knows how many hours into Pokemon Red. And... It was just kind of the start of my Pokemon journey. And I forced my sister, because she wound up getting uh, Pokemon Yellow the very next year. I kind of forced her to help me get the rest of the starters. So I I picked Bulbasaur, but I I kind of forced her to help me get Squirtle and and Charmander as well. So that kind (laughs) of... That also started something for me to where when I start a new Pokemon game, I wind up starting multiple times, trading off the other starters to a friend of mine, then starting my main playthrough, and then getting the other starters traded back to me. That way I can start with all three of them because I don't want to ever have to choose. Don't make me choose. They're all so cute. I want them all. (laughs) But, uh, I mean, I've had so many memorable... I've had so many memorable memories with... The Pokemon franchise, those are just a few of the early ones. Obviously, talking about Pokemon Snap and Pokemon Coliseum and Pokemon everything. I have been playing Pokemon games. I don't think a month has gone by in my life where I haven't spent some time in some version of a Pokemon title, whether it be one of the mainline titles, whether it be Pokemon Tournament, because you know how much I love fighting games, whether it be Pokemon Go, whether it be Pokemon Snap, whether it be one of the many Pokemon spinoffs, Pokemon Pinball, Pokemon Pinball, Ruby and Sapphire, I wore out on the Game Boy Advance. That was one of my favorite Pokemon. That was one of my favorite pinball games that's ever been released. I spent a ridiculous amount of time on Pokemon Pinball, but the franchise has just meant so much to me personally over the past 25 years that, yes, again, I did wind up getting a tattoo of a Pokeball on my right arm 
And, you know, I there's no shame in my game. I don't care. <laughs> I don't care if I've got gray hair coming out of my face. I'm still very proudly, <laughs> you know, I'm still very proudly booting up Pokemon Sword and Shield occasionally. I'm still very proudly messing around on Pokemon Go. I'm still very proudly headfirst into everything that this franchise has to offer. Yeah, for me, my I think my earliest, my introduction to Pokemon was... And this is a very much like 90s childhood kind of thing, but I believe it was on the school bus. And my longtime childhood friend, Justin, who introduced me to a lot of games because he was very much, you you know, growing up, you always had that kid who just, he got all the cool games, you know, and you never did. And he had all the cool stuff and you would go to their house to see the cool stuff. That was him. So when he got Pokemon Red, that was my, like, we were on the school bus, and I just remember he pulls out his Game Boy, and you, you guys got to understand, by the time we got these games in the States, the Game Boy was fairly old, you know, by that time. I mean, this was, you're talking about 1998 in the States, and the N64 was already out, and, like, a lot of people had already moved on to that, myself included. I was already kind of obsessed with my N64, and so he pulls out the Game Boy on the school bus, and I see Pokemon Red there in his hands. And I'm just sitting there watching him play. I'm like, like, what is this? You know? And by that time, you're starting to see it crop up on TV. And like, it just, by the time it came down to it, basically he, between him and I begging my parents, I finally was able to secure a copy of Pokemon Blue. They bought me my own copy. And, and that basically, yeah, began this 25 year now long journey with myself and Pokemon, it's, it's been a ever present constant in my life for this whole time. It's, it's like you said, it's the kind of thing where not a long period of time goes by where I don't consume some sort of Pokemon media, like between the, you know, being obsessed with the trading cards going, uh, growing up, you know, all the games, you know, like you said, Pokemon snap, Pokemon Coliseum, like Pokemon pinball, Pokemon puzzle league, like, just being obsessed with that anime and just like, it's always been there. It's just always been there. And from those early kind of like childhood memories of just being like absolutely obsessed with it to now, when we're in a kind of new Renaissance, I would say of Pokemon where I I say this all the time on the show, it's probably just as popular now as it was back then. So it's just, it's an absolute treat to be able to grow with this series to be able to still love it after all this time for it to be just as important to me now as it was then. And as we've talked about before on the show, Pokemon is very much for you and I both a happy place. When you go into this world with these monsters that you're building, you know, bonds and friendships with, it very much feels like a little home away from home. So, I mean, yeah, I guess just, Thank you, Pokemon. <laughs> Thank you for these awesome 25 years. It's it's just, uh, it's been great. And, and I am so excited to see where Pokemon goes. And as I said earlier, I feel so intimately connected to this series, maybe more so than any other series I can point to just by virtue of that. By being there when it started, literally, you know, right there at that apex, and then just, you know, continuing to grow with it over decades. And um, I mean, it's just, it's an absolute treat. I I love Pokemon and I always will. 
And well, it certainly seems like we are going to have more than enough reasons to continue to love the franchise for years to come if yesterday's presentation was anything to go off of. But, you know, those are just our opinions. Those are just our experiences with Pokemon over the last 25 years. But what about your guys? As part of our celebration, we'd love to hear what you guys have to say. What are your favorite Pokemon memories from the past two and a half decades from across the mainline franchises and the spinoffs and the manga and the anime and even the Legos, you know, let us know, let us know what your favorite Pokemon memories are. Reach out to us, please on Facebook at all in podcast on Twitter at all in podcast. And do please like, and subscribe to all in a Nintendo podcast on whatever service you are listening to us on, be it iTunes, Google play, Spotify, or SoundCloud. Once again, we appreciate each and every one of our listeners. Thank you so much for hanging out with us each and every Saturday, making us part of your weekly rotation. But, you know, I think that's going to do it for our official celebration of Pokemon Day of the 25th of the silver of the gold, silver, crystal anniversary (laughs) of the Pokemon franchise. We wish it nothing but the best going forward. and. You know what? Again, I'm just, it's so weird. I'm really excited in a weird way to see what this concert is going to be like in a few hours. I am too. I mean, it's going to be a spectacle if nothing else. I'm ready for more Hootie and the Blowfish. Well, you know what? I think you and I should crash the concert. I think we should totally do the Poke Rap. I mean, I'm down. I mean, hey, let's do it. I'll do the singing. You take care of the hard part. <laughs> I can do that. Hey, guys, we're going to go ahead and practice here for our concert debut with Post Malone in a few hours. That's totally going to happen. I have been the Mega Evolution Eric. Articuno Jinx. And I have been the limited edition Holofoil Seth card. Hey, isn't there like 900 of these now? This might take a while. Uh, It'll be all right. We got this. Electro Diglett Nidoran Mickey Hunter Squirtle Chansey Pokemon It's a whole new world we live in It's a whole new way to see It's a whole new place With a brand new attitude But you still gotta catch them all and be the best that you can be. Pokemon Johto. Pokemon Johto. Oh, that was not the right song, was it? Okay. <laughs>